5. A New Deal, Approximately 23 Minutes Turning to your left, you're standing at the head of a large, 12-feet-wide carpeted room that stretches 25 feet straight ahead in front of you. The entire right-hand side of the room is filled with metal scaffolding, some 6 to 10 feet deep, along the right-hand wall, supporting panels and displays, discussing the many rebuilding programs and reforms FDR realized in his first term. Sturdy 2-by-8-inch horizontal wooden planks are interspersed throughout the scaffolding overhead. Industrial construction zone light fixtures, 10 inches tall, with glass domes wrapped in wire cages, are mounted in various places to the underside of these planks. On top of some of the planks are 12-inch tall orange letters spelling out the major issues FDR took on as part of his New Deal. Financial reforms, jobs and relief, and rural reforms. Above the planks and signage are many posters of his programs and political cartoons of the day hanging from the ceiling. Turn around 180 degrees to face an orange wall panel to your right as you entered this room that introduces the gallery. A new deal. This nation asks for action, and action now. Franklin Roosevelt Inaugural Address, March 4, 1933. In his inaugural address, FDR demanded action and action now to fight the Great Depression. He did not waste any time in delivering on that promise. On his first full day in office, he called Congress into special session. He had promised Americans a new deal. Now he began to construct it. Roosevelt's New Deal would touch virtually every aspect of American economic life and forever change the role of the federal government in the lives of Americans. To the left of this panel is an eight-feet-wide, floor-to-ceiling, black-and-white photograph of FDR sitting in front of two black cylindrical microphones at his desk in the White House, delivering his first fireside chat eight days after taking office on March 12, 1933. Turning to your left, an enlarged eight-feet-square ink-and-pencil cartoon on the wall, about four feet in front of you, depicts President Franklin Roosevelt dressed in overalls on a train labeled U.S. Recovery New Deal Special, while a stylized Uncle Sam character gazes up at him, smiling with a clenched fist. A text panel to the right, in blue, introduces the first 100 days. FDR's first 100 days in office became the most action-packed in American history. During the dark final months of President Hoover's term, Washington, like the nation's economy, seemed to grind to a halt. Now the Capitol suddenly buzzed with activity. No new president had ever moved with such urgency on so many fronts so fast. Issuing proclamations and executive orders and driving a torrent of legislation through Congress to stimulate recovery, relieve economic hardship, and enact reforms. Some of FDR's initiatives succeeded. Others failed. Some programs were contradictory. But suffering Americans regained hope as they saw someone finally taking bold action to battle the Depression. 
To listen to more information about this action-packed era in American history and the massive government action FDR believed would help the nation recover from the Depression, including information about the specific legislation passed during FDR's first 100 days, please press 511 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please walk about six feet to your left on a 45-degree angle to the first exhibit in the scaffolding. If at any time, within the additional information, you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 511, 100 Days of Action. From here, walk about six feet to your left on a 45-degree angle to the first exhibit in the scaffolding. An orange text panel on your right talks about the first 100 days of action. FDR believed recovery from the Depression was impossible without massive government action. He would use government to relieve hardship and pump life into a collapsed economy. Government-funded jobs and relief payments would ease distress and give purchasing power to the unemployed. Government farm programs would boost agricultural prices, providing money to cash-strapped farmers. Government-sponsored industrial codes would keep wages and prices from falling further. New government agencies would bring electricity, conservation, and economic planning and development to impoverished regions and government financial reforms would aid debtors, reduce economic risks, and restore confidence in financial markets. Beginning with the Emergency Banking Act on March 9th and ending with the Glass-Steagall Banking Act on June 16, 1933, a torrent of landmark legislation poured forth from his administration, including the creation of the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Federal Emergency Relief Act, the Tennessee Valley Authority Act, the Emergency Banking Act, the Abandonment of the Gold Standard, and the Beer Wine Revenue Act, ending prohibition. The following is a list of the specific legislation passed during FDR's first 100 days. 100 Days of Action, March 9th to June 16th, 1933. Jobs and Relief. March 31st, creation of Civilian Conservation Corps. May 12th, Federal Emergency Relief Act. June 16th, National Industrial Recovery Act. June 16th, Emergency Railroad Transportation Act. Rural Reforms. May 12th, Agricultural Adjustment Act. May 12th, Emergency Farm Mortgage Act. May 18th, Tennessee Valley Authority Act. June 16th, Farm Credit Act. Financial Reforms, March 9th, Emergency Banking Act. March 20th, Government Economy Act. April 19th, Abandonment of Gold Standard. May 27th, Securities Act. June 5th, Abrogation of Gold Payment Clause. June 13th, Home Owners Loan Act. June 16th, Glass-Steagall Banking Act. Prohibition, March 22nd, Beer Wine Revenue Act. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message.
A series of blue and orange panels continue down the hallway to your left. Feel free to touch scaffolding along the wall on your right. The panels mounted throughout provide more details of the New Deal reforms, including saving the banks, financial reforms, jobs and relief, and rural reforms. To listen to detailed description taking you through FDR's initial New Deal reforms, including saving and reforming the banks, the end of prohibition, work for youth and the unemployed, rural reforms, and the National Industrial Recovery Administration, or NRA, please press 512 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to the detailed descriptions of these displays, please turn left and walk about eight feet forward and turn right. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 512, the New Deal. To your left is the first panel under the large financial reforms plank overhead, entitled Saving the Banks. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system. It is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem, no less than it is mine. Together, we cannot fail. Franklin Roosevelt, Fireside Chat on Banking, March 12, 1933. On his first full day in office, FDR confronted his greatest challenge, the banking crisis that threatened to destroy America's economy. Roosevelt began with a decisive act. Declaring a bank holiday, he temporarily closed all the nation's banks. Then he called Congress into special session to pass emergency banking legislation. Treasury officials feverishly began work on the Emergency Banking Act. Rushed to Congress four days later, it was approved within hours. The act gave the government authority to examine bank finances, provide needed capital, and determine which banks were fit to reopen. The healthy banks were authorized to reopen on March 13th. But would people trust them? On March 12th, FDR went on nationwide radio to reassure Americans. His appeal worked. The following morning, when the banks reopened, depositors lined up to return their money. The banking crisis was over. Turn left and walk about three feet and turn right. A blue panel to your right speaks to how the innovative legislation of the first 100 days reflected the work of an energetic and creative group of advisors who FDR attracted to Washington. FDR's Brain Trust The innovative legislation of the first 100 days reflected the work of an energetic and creative group of advisors who FDR attracted to Washington. During his presidential campaign, he had assembled a special group of academics and intellectuals to counsel him on policy. The press labeled the group the Brain Trust. It included Raymond Moley, a political science professor from Barnard College, Rexford Tugwell, a Columbia University expert on agriculture, and Adolph A. Burrell, Jr., a Columbia law professor. The other charter members were Basil O'Connor, FDR's law partner, and Samuel Rosenman, his legal counsel during his years as governor of New York. The creation of the Brain Trust was an important innovation that helped establish the practice of using academic advisors in presidential administrations. 
An orange panel, 90 degrees to the left, reads, Financial Reforms. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credits and investments so that there will be an end to speculation with other people's money. Franklin Roosevelt, Inaugural Address, March 4, 1933. During his first week as president, Roosevelt prevented the collapse of America's banking system. Capitalism was saved in eight days, advisor Raymond Moley later recalled. But further financial reforms were needed to reduce risk and restore confidence. FDR acted quickly to protect bank depositors and curb risky banking practices. He pushed reforms through Congress to fight fraud in the securities markets. He provided relief for debt-ridden homeowners and farmers facing the loss of their homes and property. And he worked to stimulate inflation in an effort to prop up sagging prices and wages that were dragging the economy down. Turn left and walk about another three feet and turn right. The first of two blue panels tells us about abandoning the gold standard. During the Depression, prices fell to disastrous levels, a deflationary spiral that hindered economic recovery. Farmers especially needed higher prices to make a profit on their farm products. Before 1933, the dollar's value was tied to the price of gold, and U.S. currency could be converted into gold on demand. This monetary system was known as the gold standard. In April, FDR announced that America would follow the example of Great Britain and other nations and abandon the gold standard. This made it possible for FDR to increase the supply of dollars in circulation by printing more currency, the value of which now floated. He and his advisors hoped this would help end ruinous inflation and stimulate economic activity. FDR's actions had a positive effect, though not as great as he anticipated. A second blue panel to the right reads, Reforming the Banks. From 1929 to 1933, thousands of banks in towns and cities across the nation failed, and millions of Americans lost their life savings. The Glass-Steagall Banking Act stabilized the banks, reducing bank failures from over 4,000 in 1933 to 61 in 1934. To protect depositors, the act created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, which still insures individual bank accounts. It granted the Federal Reserve System greater control over bank credit, and it ended risky stock speculation by commercial banks by separating commercial banking from investment banking. Congress dismantled this barrier in 1999. Turn now to your left and step about a foot forward to face a rectangular glass case detailing the path of the repeal of prohibition. In the case are several artifacts from the period, including a ceramic beer pitcher and a set of mugs from 1934. The pitcher displays a jaunty FDR and the words, Happy Days Are Here Again, the title of his 1932 campaign song. Each mug in the set features a caricature of a prominent Democrat. The three mugs displayed here depict Roosevelt, former New York Governor Alfred Smith, and Democratic Party Chairman James Farley. 
Prohibition repeal was a major plank in the Democratic Party's 1932 platform. It was promoted in campaign buttons and paraphernalia. Included here is a car license plate featuring the images of FDR and his VP running mate, John Nance Garner, with a full glass beer stein between them. A text panel in the case reads, Beer returns. I think this would be a good time for beer. Franklin Roosevelt, March 12, 1933. One of the most popular bills enacted during the first 100 days had nothing to do with banking, farms, or public works. During the 1932 campaign, FDR had come out against prohibition. The 18th Amendment, ratified nine years earlier, banned the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquors. Meant to end the curse of alcoholism, it had led instead to lawlessness and helped foster organized crime. A constitutional amendment to repeal it was working its way through the state legislatures. But Roosevelt saw a way to quench the voters' thirst more quickly. He signed into law the Beer Wine Revenue Act that legalized and taxed beverages containing no more than 3.2% alcohol, which the authors of the new law carefully defined as non-intoxicating. Millions of Americans celebrated the return of legal beer. Prohibition was officially repealed by the 21st Amendment in December 1933. Turning left, we come to two more panels describing how the Depression affected people's lives. Helping homeowners. The Depression put tremendous pressure on homeowners. By early 1933, nearly half of the $20 billion in home mortgages was in default. The defaults weakened lending institutions and undercut home values. Roosevelt responded to the mortgage crisis by creating the Homeowners Loan Corporation, HOLC. During the next three years, the HOLC made nearly one million loans. By 1936, it had financed 20% of the mortgaged urban homes in America. The corporation also issued cash advances to pay for property taxes and home repairs and redeem properties lost to foreclosure. The HOLC pioneered a large federal government role in home mortgages that continues to this day. Fighting Fraud The stock market crash of 1929 exposed the lack of regulation in America's financial markets. Investor fraud, risky credit deals, and other abuses were widespread. The Securities Act was designed to curb such abuses, reduce risk, restore public confidence, and encourage investment. For the first time, the federal government became directly involved in policing the securities markets. The act required companies that issue stock to file detailed information about new securities with the Federal Trade Commission, FTC. Any false statements could lead to criminal prosecution and civil suits. The act broadened the investigating and prosecuting powers of the FTC. Since 1933, the federal government has taken a strong hand in protecting investors. Turn left and walk about three feet forward and turn right to face an orange panel under another wooden plank that talks about jobs and relief. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. Franklin Roosevelt, 
inaugural address, March 4, 1933. When FDR took office, one out of four workers was without a job. Another one in four could only find part-time work. Millions of Americans were barely surviving on dwindling aid provided by overwhelmed charities and state and local governments. Roosevelt moved immediately to put people back to work. He launched the largest public works program in American history. He directed billions of federal dollars to fund work relief for the unemployed. And he committed the government to an unprecedented effort to regulate prices and wages and improve business and labor conditions in the United States. FDR's goal was to provide immediate assistance to the unemployed and to increase their purchasing power. They could then buy more goods and services and help boost the nation's economy. Facing this panel, turn left and walk about two feet and turn right. Walk another two feet and turn right. A blue text panel in front of you talks about work for the unemployed. The Federal Emergency Relief Administration, FERA, quickly created government-funded jobs for millions of unemployed workers. FERA provided states and cities with billions of dollars to finance local work projects. From 1933 to 1935, it completed over 235,000 projects. At its peak, it employed almost 2.5 million people. The agency helped millions of families survive during the bleakest years of the Great Depression. The Public Works Administration, PWA, contracted with private construction companies to put additional people to work building highways, canals, dams, and other large-scale infrastructure. PWA accounted for one-third of all construction in America in 1933. From 1933 to 1939, it funded over 34,000 projects, including the Grand Coulee Dam, the Lincoln Tunnel, and the All-American Canal. Turn left, walk about three feet, and turn right. Another blue text panel tells us of Jobs for Youth. High youth unemployment troubled FDR. He personally devised the idea for the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, a program to put young men aged 17 to 24, many from urban areas, to work on conservation projects in healthy rural environments. Within three months, the Corps enlisted nearly 250,000 young men. They were assigned to CCC camps around the nation. African Americans participated, but they worked in segregated camps. During its nine-year existence, the CCC employed nearly three million men. Eleanor Roosevelt championed the CCC, and with her strong backing, a much smaller program was also created for unemployed young women. The CCC planted over two billion trees, bought forest fires, built trails, campgrounds, and reservoirs, and aided with soil conservation programs. It became one of the New Deal's most popular and successful programs. Its legacy remains today in facilities it constructed throughout America's national forests and parks. Turning left, we come to a series of panels under a wooden plank supporting the words, Rural Reforms. 
An orange introductory panel reads, If we can greatly increase the purchasing power of the tens of millions of our people who make a living from farming, we shall greatly increase the consumption of those goods which are turned out by industry. Franklin Roosevelt, 3rd Fireside Chat, July 24, 1933. FDR believed aiding America's farmers was crucial to ending the Great Depression. In 1933, more than one in five workers were farmers. They had been struggling through hard times since the 1920s, when crop prices dropped sharply. The Depression turned hard times in rural America into crisis times. Prices for agricultural products collapsed, causing farm income to plummet 60%. Desperate farmers defaulted on bank loans and lost their lands. Tenant farmers and sharecroppers were forced to accept harsh terms from landlords. Farm laborers' wages were cut. Roosevelt's farm program aimed to rescue indebted farmers and increase their income. Farmers could then buy products produced in the nation's cities, aiding economic recovery there. He also planned to improve rural life and productivity by bringing electricity and industry to underdeveloped areas. A blue panel to your left reads, Powering Rural America. Imagine a world without electricity. In 1933, 90% of America's farmers lived in such a world. Ignored by private power companies who could not make a profit wiring rural areas, farm families passed their nights in darkened homes. Their days were filled with time-consuming manual labor. Electricity could transform farm life with pumps to supply running water, refrigerators, washing machines, and other labor-saving devices. A longtime advocate of public power, FDR was determined to bring affordable electricity to rural Americans. The Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA, was a first step. It put thousands of people to work building dams and public power plants in the giant Tennessee River Valley. The TVA controlled flooding, improved agriculture, and developed industry in the valley. It sparked economic growth and improved living standards in a region touching seven states. Today, TVA is America's largest public power producer. To the immediate right is another blue panel, which reads, NRA, we do our part. The centerpiece of FDR's economic revival plan was the National Industrial Recovery Administration, NRA. The NRA sought to end cutthroat competition that was reducing wages and prices to disastrous levels. It encouraged businesses in hundreds of industries to create codes of fair competition. The codes set maximum hours and minimum wages, guaranteed union rights, and prohibited child labor. Companies adopting the codes were exempt from antitrust laws. They proudly displayed NRA's Blue Eagle symbol on their products. NRA parades and rallies became community events. These activities gave Americans a psychological lift, but the NRA proved ineffective. Its codes were unwieldy and sometimes ludicrous, including regulations for industries like shoulder pads, dog food, and burlesque theaters. 
Many codes favored larger businesses and encouraged monopolistic practices that hindered economic recovery. Few mourned when the NRA was declared unconstitutional in 1935. Turning left once more, walk two feet forward, turn right, walk about three feet, and turn right again. To your right on a 45-degree angle are the final two rural reform panels. The first one on the left is entitled Saving Family Farms and reads, Falling prices for agricultural products sharply cut farm income during the Great Depression. Strapped for cash, many farmers couldn't pay their mortgages. By 1933, thousands had lost their farms and many more faced the threat of foreclosure. To meet this crisis, FDR included credit legislation in his farm program. The Emergency Farm Mortgage Act refinanced farm loans at lower interest rates and on easier terms. The Farm Credit Act established local credit institutions for farmers to improve their access to capital. These laws kept thousands of farmers from losing their lands and set a precedent that continues today. A second panel to the right tells us about raising farm income. The centerpiece of FDR's farm program was the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, AAA. The AAA sought to raise farmers' income by increasing crop prices. To do this, the government paid farmers to cut production by reducing livestock herds and leaving some fields unplanted. The AAA was controversial. Some objected to cutting agricultural production when many Americans lacked adequate food. The AAA also hurt poor farm laborers because landlords often evicted tenant farmers from unplanted land. The agency's success in raising farm prices greatly relieved rural suffering by getting badly needed cash into the hands of farmers. By the end of 1933, Farm prices had nearly doubled. By 1934, over 3 million farmers were participating in the program. Please turn around 180 degrees and walk about 10 feet forward to continue your tour. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. In a floor-to-ceiling black-and-white photograph, a middle-aged man dressed in a buttoned-up, white, long-sleeved shirt, sits with his hands folded in his lap in front of an old-time radio. The left side of the gallery starts with this photo and its heading, Reaching the People. To listen to additional information about FDR's use of radio to communicate with the American people, please press 513 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to detailed description in this layer, please turn right and walk about eight feet forward. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 513, Reaching the People. A blue wall panel on the left reads, You are the first president to come into our homes. Until last night, to me, the President of the United States was merely a legend, a picture to look at. But you are real. Mildred I. Goldstein to FDR, March 13, 1933. 
FDR forged a powerful bond with Americans by communicating with them in ways no previous president had. His freewheeling press conferences, eventually totaling almost 1,000, attracted attention. But Roosevelt's greatest communication tool was radio. This new invention revolutionized politics during the 1920s and 1930s. For the first time, millions could hear the live voices of national leaders. FDR was a master of radio, using it to bypass the press and speak directly to his fellow citizens. Days after entering office, he began an innovative series of radio addresses that reporters labeled Fireside Chats. He did not orate, as some other politicians did when confronted by a microphone. Instead, he spoke calmly, conversationally, as if he were actually sitting in his listener's living room. Thousands responded with letters. White House mail jumped from 5,000 letters a week to 50,000. In front of you against the wall stands a small glass display case set on a three-feet-tall rectangular pedestal, about three feet wide by two feet deep. Inside the case is the old-time radio microphone FDR used to deliver some of his fireside chats from the White House during the 1930s. A black cube, almost six inches square, with a flat, round screen about one and a half inches around, sits atop a sturdy black tapering cylinder attached to a square base. The entire apparatus is about a foot tall. Now, turn to your right and move several feet down this side of the gallery to a replica of a 1930s-era kitchen on your left. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. On your left is a replica of a 1930s-era kitchen. You'll note the shift to wood flooring. A white text panel on the left wall of the kitchen reads, FDR's Conversation with America, the New Deal. During his first days in office, FDR needed to calm the fears of an anxious nation and begin to explain his program for economic recovery. To do this, he used the greatest mass communication device of the 1930s, the radio. In his famous fireside chats, he reached out directly to the public, bypassing Congress and the press to speak to the American people in their homes and workplaces. Thousands responded by writing letters to him. Feel free to sit down in a chair and listen to FDR on the radio in this kitchen of a hard-pressed American family of the early 1930s. Listen also to some of the response letters, both pro and con, that he received. Just ahead of you are three wooden chairs around a small wooden table. On the table is a panel with four push buttons you can press to hear recordings from the era. The top three buttons play two-minute excerpts from several of FDR's fireside chats, while the bottom button plays excerpts of people's responses. On the left wall is a white enameled sink with several white wash basins and a washboard leaning against one wall. Laundry is hung along the side wall, the line hooked onto the side of a white glass-doored wall-hanging pantry above a white sideboy cabinet sitting on the floor. On top of the sideboy is a brown wooden cathedral radio. A small picture of FDR hangs on the wall to the right of the pantry. On the right side of the kitchen sits a brown wooden icebox 
about four feet high, three feet wide, and two feet deep, with two wooden panel doors. A paper tear-off calendar showing the month of March 1933 hangs above the icebox under a framed piece of needlepoint artwork, Lovest Thou Me? Facing the kitchen table, turn around 180 degrees and move back onto the carpeted surface of this gallery. Another series of orange and blue panels fill the back wall of the hallway among additional scaffolding. Walk six feet to your right on a 45-degree angle and turn left 45 degrees. A life-size black-and-white photograph of FDR at the dedication of the Boulder Dam, now known as the Hoover Dam, on the Nevada-Arizona border from September 30, 1935, covers the wall in front of you. To the left, against a blue background, an introduction to this part of the gallery reads, Expanding the New Deal. Boys, this is our hour. We've got to get everything we want. A work program, social security, wages and hours, everything now or never. Get your minds to work on developing a complete ticket to provide security for all the folks of this country, up and down and across the board. Presidential Advisor Harry Hopkins, November 1934. FDR's bold action during his first 100 days in office stopped the economy's downward spiral. The Great Depression was far from over, but by 1934, unemployment had dropped from 25% to 21%, the first decrease since 1929. Much of this decline resulted from government work programs, but private investment doubled in 1934. For the first time since 1929, America's economy was growing. Voters rewarded FDR and the Democrats in the 1934 congressional midterm elections. Democrats increased their already enormous margins in the House and Senate. FDR and the new Congress faced growing pressure from the left. Labor activists and populists, frustrated by the recovery's slow progress, pushed for bigger and more far-reaching reforms. Roosevelt's legislative agenda for 1935 already called for an expanded New Deal. His plans included landmark legislation that forever changed American economic life. To your left are additional orange and blue panels on scaffolding. These panels provide details on the expansion New Deal, including labor reforms, wages and hours legislation, Social Security, and the WPA. To listen to the descriptions about FDR's expanded New Deal reforms, please press 514 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to the information in this layer, please turn left and walk about 12 feet forward and turn left. If at any time you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 514, Expanding the New Deal. Under a wooden plank with the words labor reforms on it, an orange text panel reads, Labor reforms. This act defines the right of self-organization of employees in industry for the purpose of collective bargaining. It should serve as an important step toward the achievement of just and peaceful labor relations in industry. Franklin Roosevelt, Statement on Signing the Wagner Act, July 5, 1935. 
Before the New Deal, American workers had little power. Employers set wages as low as they wished. Pensions and other benefits were rare. Workplace safety was poor and child labor widespread. Unions had only limited legal protection. Workers who tried to organize faced intimidation, firing, and even violence. FDR changed this balance of power. The 1933 National Industrial Recovery Act had guaranteed labor's right to organize and bargain collectively. Now, FDR signed the Wagner Act, the most important labor law in American history. It affirmed the right of workers to organize unions, required employers to bargain with union representatives, and enhanced the power of the National Labor Relations Board to mediate disputes. Union organizers swiftly capitalized on these laws. Between 1930 and 1945, the percentage of unionized workers jumped from 7% to nearly 34%. Organized labor became a major economic force and a powerful ally of FDR's Democratic Party. To your left, a blue panel reads, Wages and Hours Legislation. Today, there is general recognition that there should be a floor to wages and a ceiling to hours, that working conditions should be safe and healthy, and that child labor should be eliminated from industry. Franklin Roosevelt, letter of greeting on the 25th anniversary of the Labor Department, March 3, 1938. In 1938, New Dealers enacted a second landmark labor law, Its goal, in FDR's words, was to end starvation wages and intolerable hours. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 established a national minimum wage and eventually a 40-hour week for workers in industry. The law did not include workers in agriculture, domestic service, and some other service areas. Liberal critics objected to these exclusions, the result of compromises with conservative Southern Democrats. But they applauded another provision in the act that fulfilled a decades-long dream of reformers. It prohibited employment of children under the age of 16 in most occupations. Turn left to face a glass display case with artifacts entitled Gifts from the People. Many of FDR's admirers sent him handmade gifts to express their support for the New Deal. Some came with letters describing how his initiatives had directly impacted their life. Several distinctive gifts to the president are displayed here, including a nearly three-feet-high hand-carved scroll-cut clock case built by 20-year-old Ernestine Guerrero of San Antonio, Texas. She used a kit pattern and wood she salvaged from the grocery boxes provided to her family. Ornate and intricate, it resembles a vaulted cathedral with three levels, two matching spires on each side, several balconies and gates, and a large central bell tower. There's also a brass, bronze, and copper ship model of the Caravelle Prosperity from 1933, built by J.G. Wilbert. The model is 12 inches wide and 15 inches tall with sails fully unfurled. 
An anchor hangs off the bow, and its flag features the Blue Eagle of the National Recovery Administration, NRA. Turn left and walk three feet and turn right. Under another wooden plank with letters spelling Social Security, an orange panel reads, Social Security. We can never insure 100% of the population against 100% of the hazards and vicissitudes of life. But we have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection to the average citizen and to his family against the loss of a job and against poverty-ridden old age. Franklin Roosevelt, August 14, 1935. When the Depression struck, there was no federal social safety net for the elderly and the unemployed. Almost half of America's seniors were unable to support themselves. Jobless people fell quickly into poverty. Family resources and charities were stretched beyond the breaking point, and state and local government provided little aid. Roosevelt, Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins, and other reformers had long supported the idea of government-sponsored pensions and unemployment insurance. Now this cause was given urgency by powerful grassroots movements, including the Townsend Movement, a national campaign for old-age pensions. On August 14, 1935, FDR signed his proudest domestic achievement, the Social Security Act. It created old-age pensions and unemployment insurance, funded by payroll taxes on workers and employers. The Act also provided grants to states to assist disabled people and fatherless children. Turn left and walk two feet and turn right 45 degrees. To your right is a blue panel that talks about voices of protest. During FDR's first term, powerful populist figures emerged who challenged New Deal policies as halfway measures. In California, Francis Townsend launched a national campaign to provide everyone over 60 with generous monthly pensions funded by a national sales tax. Since recipients had to spend their checks within 30 days, Townsend argued his proposal would also revive the economy by stimulating consumer spending. Critics said it would simply transfer purchasing power from the young to the old, while doubling the national tax burden. In Michigan, Charles Coughlin, a charismatic Roman Catholic priest with a popular national radio program, railed against Wall Street bankers and advocated inflationary monetary schemes. By 1937, his message was increasingly laced with anti-Semitism. Roosevelt's most formidable populist critic was Louisiana Senator Huey Long. Long's popular Share Our Wealth program promised to make every man a king by taxing the rich to provide a guaranteed annual minimum income to every American. To your left, about waist high, is an angled interactive touchscreen display entitled Who's Who? Many diplomats, generals, foreign leaders, family members, friends, and political associates of the Roosevelts appear in this exhibit. Touch the screen to learn more about them. A touchscreen on the right side of this display lists all the names included in this Who's Who? arranged alphabetically. 
turn left to face a glass-encased display case with a number of artifacts and descriptions about New Deal artworks. New Deal jobs initiatives included programs to employ artists and writers. These programs also served a larger purpose, to give all Americans access to art and culture. Artists and writers brought theater, music, and dance to every corner of the nation and created art for government buildings and exhibitions. Several New Deal artworks and publications drawn from the Roosevelt Library's collections are displayed here, including a silkscreen print from Portfolio of Folk Art of Rural Pennsylvania, part of the Pennsylvania Federal Art Project of 1938. It shows a red, white, and blue tulip growing out of a stylized black and orange Grecian urn, its stem forming a heart about the urn. Two red birds with black and blue wings stand flanking the heart, while two white doves fly above and around the flower. There are also detailed guidebooks to American states, regions, and communities, written by writers and authors around the nation, employed by the WPA. A pipe whose wooden bowl is carved in the shape of an FDR caricature and carved pine statuettes of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, about 12 inches tall. Facing this glass display case, turn left and walk three feet, and turn right to face an orange text panel that talks about the WPA. This is a great national crusade to destroy enforced idleness, which is an enemy of the human spirit generated by this depression. Franklin Roosevelt, Fireside Chat, April 28, 1935. During 1933 and 1934, FDR took unprecedented action to put Americans to work with new agencies like the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, and the Public Works Administration, PWA. Yet, unemployment remained high. FDR's response was to establish a new jobs agency that dwarfed all previous efforts, the Works Progress Administration, WPA. Created by executive order on May 5, 1935, the WPA was the largest public works initiative in American history. At its height, it employed 3.3 million people. The WPA did not contract with private companies. It hired the unemployed directly. Conservative critics charged the agency wasted money on make-work projects. But WPA workers built thousands of roads, bridges, tunnels, parks, airports, schools, courthouses, post offices, and other public buildings. Agency artists created nearly 500,000 works of public art and brought theater, literature, oral histories, music, and dance to communities around the nation. Turn left again and walk two feet, then turn right and walk about another two feet and turn right. A large blue panel, about four feet wide by three feet tall, talks about many prominent New Deal artists. The WPA and other New Deal programs provided jobs for millions of unemployed Americans. These included tens of thousands of musicians, actors, dancers, sculptors, photographers, painters, and writers. 
A number of these individuals eventually became prominent in their fields. The list includes Nelson Algren, Saul Bellow, John Cheever, Catherine Dunham, Woody Guthrie, Zora Neale Hurston, Burt Lancaster, E.G. Marshall, Jackson Pollock, Pete Seeger, Louis Studs Turkle, Margaret Walker, Orson Welles, and Eudora Welty. Turning to your left, an interactive touchscreen display about waist high covers the right two-thirds of an angled display desk. Text asks the question, what's the big deal with the New Deal? This map-based interactive shows you. Come explore the enormous infrastructure initiatives of the New Deal by selecting from the categories listed on the right. Learn about government contributions to many conveniences we take for granted today. See how these projects helped strengthen the nation's economy during the Great Depression. Maybe you'll find a New Deal project in your own community. Now, please turn around 180 degrees from this display and walk about 8 feet forward, then turn to your right. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. You're now standing in front of a small blue alcove about 8 feet wide. Here you will find displays detailing Eleanor's actions addressing racial justice, forging a bold new path as First Lady, and her activities as a newspaper columnist and radio personality. To listen to this additional information about Eleanor Roosevelt, please press 515 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to detailed descriptions in this layer, please turn right and walk about 10 feet forward. Turn left and walk another 2 feet. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 515, Eleanor Roosevelt. On the wall in front of you are two text panels, the first one entitled, Eleanor and Race. We have never been willing to face this problem, to line it up with the basic underlying beliefs in democracy. Eleanor Roosevelt, The Moral Basis of Democracy, 1940. Until the 1930s, racial justice was not a cause that engaged Eleanor Roosevelt. But as she traveled around the nation, she saw for herself the depth of racial discrimination in America and resolved to do whatever she could to combat it. In January 1934, she invited NAACP director Walter White and other African-American leaders to the White House for an unprecedented meeting. Soon after, she began pressuring New Deal agencies to end discrimination in pay and work assignments, lobbying FDR to appoint blacks to administrative positions in New Deal agencies, and pushing her husband to support anti-lynching legislation. ER's outspoken advocacy generated a powerful response from African Americans. Segregationists reacted with hatred and outrage. The Ku Klux Klan threatened her. Undeterred, ER grew more outspoken in her attacks on racial inequality. On the same wall, immediately to the right, is another text panel entitled Marian Anderson, the DAR, and Eleanor Roosevelt. 
1939, Mrs. Roosevelt became involved in a famous event in civil rights history. In January 1939, the Daughters of the American Revolution, D.A.R., refused a request to let renowned African-American contralto Marian Anderson perform in Constitution Hall, their Washington, D.C. auditorium. The nation's capital was racially segregated, and the D.A.R. had an unwritten policy of allowing only white performers. Despite public pressure, the D.A.R., continued to deny Anderson use of the auditorium. Seeking to signal her disapproval, E.R. invited Anderson to perform at the White House. Then, on February 26, 1939, she resigned from the D.A.R. Mrs. Roosevelt then worked quietly with others to promote the idea of an outdoor concert by Anderson at the Lincoln Memorial. Anderson's stirring April 9th concert attracted 75,000 people. The DAR's refusal to let Anderson perform, ER's resignation, and the Lincoln Memorial Concert together focused national attention on America's color barrier. Turn around 180 degrees and walk about two feet forward. The remaining portion of this exhibit on Eleanor Roosevelt begins with an introductory text panel that reads... A new kind of first lady. I knew what traditionally should lie before me, and I cannot say that I was pleased at the prospect. The turmoil in my heart and mind was rather great that night. Eleanor Roosevelt's memory of election night, 1932. This I remember, 1949. Eleanor Roosevelt dreaded becoming first lady. A writer, Teacher, social reformer, and political activist, she relished her hard-won freedom and financial independence. Though happy for her husband's success, she now faced the prospect of a life confined to the traditional social duties of the president's wife. At FDR's insistence, Eleanor resigned all of her professional positions. She came to Washington with no defined role other than White House hostess. Yet E.R. soon began showing FDR how her energy and interests could help him achieve his goals. Instead of conforming to the accepted role of First Lady, she redefined it. She began holding press conferences on political matters for female reporters. She made fact-finding trips, logging 40,000 miles in three months. She asked Americans to write to her with their concerns. Within months, she received 300,000 letters. ER's actions served notice that she was a new kind of first lady. Turn right and walk two feet, then turn left to face a last bit of scaffolding with a series of brown panels, beginning with one on your left, about Eleanor Roosevelt as a newspaper columnist. Eleanor Roosevelt reached out to Americans in ways no previous First Lady had ever done. She traveled the country on lecture tours. She hosted radio programs where she defended New Deal programs and spoke out on public issues. And in 1936, she inaugurated a -a six-day-a-week syndicated newspaper column titled My Day. Written in a simple, unpretentious style, My Day initially chronicled the large and small details of Mrs. Roosevelt's life as First Lady. 
but she increasingly used it to discuss social issues and promote political policies. During ER's years as First Lady, My Day appeared in up to 62 newspapers with a total circulation of over 4 million. For a time, she was the third most popular syndicated columnist in America. She continued writing the column until shortly before her death in 1962. Turn to your right and walk about two feet forward to an angled display panel about waist high. Hanging on this panel, about a foot in from the left and right sides of the five-feet panel, are two black wand earpieces with dangling black cords and a series of three push buttons arranged vertically to the left and right of the wands. You may listen to a few audio recordings of Eleanor's many radio appearances from the time by holding a wand to your ear and pressing one of the three buttons on the vertical panel. Note that there are two buttons on the front of each wand that allow you to control the volume. Text to the right of the left-hand wand reads, Radio Personality. ER became a prominent radio personality during the 1930s and 40s. She began appearing on the radio during the 1920s, speaking about public issues on New York stations. When she became First Lady, she was interviewed on countless radio shows, commenting on news events and public policy. She also hosted several current events programs. In 1939, WNBC called her the First Lady of Radio. Though she donated her fees to charity, Mrs. Roosevelt still endured criticism from some who felt this work was inappropriate. Lift the handset to listen to a selection of her radio appearances. The top button is a recording from December 16, 1937, in which ER discusses women in the workplace. The middle button plays a recording of ER talking with actress Katherine Hepburn on September 27, 1940. The bottom button plays a recording of ER speaking about tolerance and democracy from September 28, 1941. Turn right and walk three feet and turn left. We've come to the last panel in this room, which addresses the partnership Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt forged in the White House. A brown text panel reads, A Revolutionary Partnership. No one who ever saw Eleanor Roosevelt sit down facing her husband and holding his eyes firmly say to him, Franklin, I think you should, or Franklin, surely you will not, will ever forget the experience. New Deal Administrator Rexford Tugwell. Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt created a revolutionary political partnership. A tireless traveler and astute observer, Eleanor provided vital assistance to her husband by making fact-finding trips to get a first-hand perspective on economic conditions and the progress of New Deal programs. The First Lady lobbied FDR for the appointment of women and minorities to administrative positions and gave them access to the president. She criticized racial and gender discrimination within New Deal programs, urged administration figures to address it, and became a vocal advocate for education and youth. I sometimes acted as a spur, she recalled, even though the spurring was not always wanted. 
Though ER often challenged FDR in private, she rarely dissented from his policies in public. The president sometimes used Eleanor to test the waters for legislation he was considering. If political reaction was negative, FDR could smile and claim it was simply his missus' view. Hanging to the left of this panel are two memos from Eleanor to FDR, behind a flat glass panel with the explanatory text, Eleanor Roosevelt frequently offered recommendations and advice to her husband. The Roosevelts developed a system to ensure that her concerns received the president's attention during his crowded days. ER placed short memos like these in a basket at FDR's bedside for the president to review later. The example on the top contains a brief approval note in FDR's hand. Turn right and walk about two feet and then turn left. Walk about three feet and turn left again. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. On the wall to your left is an eight feet tall poster from the Prairie States Forestry Project comparing two plains barn scenes. The barn on the left is surrounded by verdant fields separated by rows of trees while the barn on the right is seen amidst a sea of wind-blown, barren soil with the caption, Trees Prevent Wind Erosion. About four feet to the right, on the floor against the wall, is a two feet wide by six feet tall glass display case with artifacts bearing the likeness of FDR. To listen to more information about the artifacts in this case, demonstrating how FDR loomed large in American popular culture, please press 516 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 516, Roosevelt in Popular Culture. A blue text panel in the case explains Roosevelt in popular culture. Franklin Roosevelt loomed large in American popular culture. Elected to four terms as America's president, he became a familiar presence on the radio and in newspapers, magazines, and newsreels. Inevitably, his well-known likeness appeared on products ranging from lamps and clocks to calendars, bookends, and jigsaw puzzles. The artifacts include a jigsaw puzzle of FDR sitting at his desk, a set of bookends, a coin bank, a teacup and saucer, and ashtray, a character jug, and a combination lamp and clock. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. From a position about four feet in front of the display case, Turn to your right and walk about three feet, and turn left to the beginning of a series of exhibits on conservation and the New Deal and the Dust Bowl of the Great Plains. More about FDR's efforts to curb the excesses of capitalism and his many critics and admirers. To listen to more information about these exhibits, please press 517 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please turn to your right and walk about 10 feet. Turn to your right again, walk forward another 10 feet, and turn to your left. If at any time within the additional information 
you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 517, Conservation, Regulating Markets, and Critics. An orange introductory text panel reads, Conservation and the New Deal. A lover of nature and rural life, FDR had a keen interest in conservation. He made it a major focus of his presidency. Roosevelt's conservation vision emphasized government planning in the development and preservation of natural resources. This was reflected in his approach to public power, which emphasized flood control and reducing soil erosion, along with the production of cheap electricity. Land management was another concern. Prior to the New Deal, poor agricultural practices had contributed to soil depletion and decreased yields. FDR attacked this problem on several fronts. The Soil Conservation Service helped farmers enrich their soil and stem erosion. The Taylor Grazing Act regulated grazing on overused public ranges. And Roosevelt added millions of acres to America's national forests. Though the New Deal helped spread interest in natural resource preservation, some New Deal policies had unintended negative effects. In particular, the damming of rivers and construction of fire roads and public structures in natural landscapes was intrusive and destructive. In front of you are several blue panels with pictures and descriptions of the Dust Bowl of the mid-1930s plains. To your right is a two-by-three-feet black-and-white photograph of a grim-faced, black-haired woman touching her cheek on her frowning face as two dirty, mop-headed children bury their faces behind her shoulders. Several smaller, one-by-three-feet panels show photographs of displaced families in ramshackle shacks and tents, lines of evicted sharecroppers in Missouri, and heavily eroded farms. A blue text panel on your left reads, The Dust Bowl. I have just come through eastern Colorado and western Kansas, parts of our national dust bowl, where swirling clouds of dust show the erosion which years of man's neglect have wrought in the soil. Franklin Roosevelt, address at Kansas City, October 13, 1936. The New Deal's greatest environmental challenge unfolded on the Great Plains. Decades of intensive farming and inattention to soil conservation had left this vast region ecologically vulnerable. A long drought in the early 1930s triggered disaster. The winds that sweep across the plains began carrying off its dry, depleted topsoil in enormous dust storms. In the hardest-hit area, nicknamed the Dust Bowl, hundreds of thousands of people abandoned the land. Many migrated to California, picking crops for low wages amid squalid living conditions. The New Deal's Farm Security Administration assisted migrant workers by operating clean residential camps that became islands of stability for migrants enduring grinding poverty. The FSA also promoted soil conservation and improved farmland ravaged by erosion. FDR's Shelter Belt Program fought wind erosion by planting over 200 million trees in a belt running from Canada 
to Texas. This immense windbreak moderated the Dust Bowl's destructive winds. To your far right, about six feet away, is an orange panel in the scaffolding entitled Regulating Financial Markets. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credits and investments so that there will be an end to speculation with other people's money. Franklin Roosevelt, Inaugural Address, March 4, 1933. The New Deal set out to curb the excesses of capitalism in order to save it. It did this through government regulation. Perhaps the most important New Deal regulatory agency was the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC. FDR established the SEC in 1934 to police financial markets and root out insider trading, fraud, and other abuses common in the years before the 1929 stock market crash. In a masterful stroke, FDR selected Joseph P. Kennedy, father of future President John F. Kennedy, as the commission's first chair. Kennedy had made a fortune as a Wall Street speculator. Liberals protested the appointment, but FDR reasoned that Kennedy knew every market trick and would quickly spot abuses. Kennedy proved to be a gifted regulator, and the SEC helped rebuild faith and prosperity in the financial markets. Turn right and walk about six feet to a text panel on your left entitled, Critics and Admirers. FDR was an activist president who fundamentally changed American political and economic life. Inevitably, he stirred emotions and generated controversy. By the mid-1930s, he was arguably the most admired and despised public figure in America. Roosevelt inspired intense devotion from his supporters. Millions of people felt a deeply personal connection to him for saving the family home from foreclosure, bringing electricity to their farm, providing a job for an unemployed father, giving a young person a chance to attend college, or ensuring a pension for an elderly parent. Roosevelt's critics were just as intense in their hatred of that man in the White House. Conservatives believed he and Eleanor Roosevelt were dangerous radicals leading the nation into socialism and possibly dictatorship. Left-wing critics complained that the Roosevelts were too moderate and unwilling to challenge entrenched interests. To your right, covering the entire wall are two political cartoons, one above the other. The bottom one shows FDR in a boat, trying to harpoon a whale labeled Economic Distress, while the top cartoon depicts FDR dressed in winter clothes, patting a snowball as big as himself labeled U.S. Debt, and saying, sure, it's going to get larger and larger, but it'll melt. Facing the cartoons, turn right and walk about four feet and turn left. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Covering the wall in front of you is another large-scale black-and-white photograph of FDR sitting in a wheelchair with his little black dog, Fala, sitting in his lap, nuzzling the hand of a pre-adolescent blonde-haired girl standing next to them. To listen to more information about how the reality of FDR's physical disability 
contrasted with his public image as a strong leader, please press 518 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 518, FDR's Disability, Image, and Reality. A panel to the left of the photograph reads, FDR's Disability, Image, and Reality. To this day, no one has ever heard him admit that he could not walk. Never have his crippled legs deterred him from going where he would. Time, February 1st, 1932. Early in his presidency, the image of FDR as an exceptionally strong and active leader became firmly fixed in popular culture. That image contrasted sharply with the reality of his physical disability. In 1921, Roosevelt contracted polio. It left him paralyzed below the waist. During the 1920s, he developed the capacity to stand with leg braces and to appear to walk short distances in public using a cane and gripping a companion's arm. Americans knew FDR had battled polio, but the degree of his paralysis was less understood. Each day, Roosevelt's valet helped him get out of bed and dress. He moved from room to room by wheelchair. Aides lifted him into cars and sometimes carried him into buildings. When he traveled, advance teams built ramps and bolted podiums to the floor. The press operated under a tacit understanding that FDR should not be photographed in a wheelchair, being carried, or in other vulnerable situations. To the right side of the photograph is a wall display entitled FDR's Disability. Among the over 130,000 photographs in the FDR Library's collections, there are only four of Roosevelt in a wheelchair. They are displayed here. The video program includes other photographs that reveal aspects of his disability and rare film footage of the president walking in public. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Turn around 180 degrees and walk about 8 feet to your left on a 45-degree angle to face the next exhibit entitled the 1936 election campaign. A floor-to-ceiling photograph shows Roosevelt amid a sea of people speaking at a giant rally during the campaign. To listen to additional information about FDR seeking a second term in the 1936 election, please press 519 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please turn around 180 degrees and walk about 10 feet forward. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 519-1936 Election Campaign To your right, text on the wall reads, I should like to have it said of my first administration that in it the forces of selfishness and of lust for power met their match. I should like to have it said of my second administration that in it these forces met their master. Franklin Roosevelt, Address at Madison Square Garden, October 31st, 1936. 
it was clear FDR would seek a second term in 1936. His New Deal had restored confidence, and America was climbing slowly out of the Depression. Unemployment remained high, but had fallen from 25% to 17%. The right bitterly despised FDR, but he also faced a serious challenge from populists on the left. His most formidable opponent was Senator Huey Long of Louisiana, whose Share Our Wealth program promised every American a guaranteed minimum income financed by steep taxes on the rich. But Long was assassinated in 1935, and the populist challenge faded. FDR's GOP opponent, Kansas Governor Alfred Landon, was a progressive Republican, but he opposed much of the New Deal. Roosevelt responded with fiery, class-based rhetoric. The forces of organized money are unanimous in their hate for me, he charged, and I welcome their hatred. He defeated Landon in a landslide. To the left of this text is a small, three-inch-deep plexiglass wall display case showing buttons and posters from the 1936 campaign. Turning to your left, about six feet in front of you, is a life-size photograph of FDR standing with his grown sons, John and Franklin Jr., Franklin's mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, and Eleanor in front of a bank of microphones on the porch of their Springwood home. Ten-inch high letters above the photo on the wall read, 1936 Election Results. A panel to the right reads, FDR's 1936 victory was the biggest electoral landslide in American history. Republican candidate Alfred Landon carried just two states, Maine and Vermont. Long a bellwether of presidential elections, Maine once boasted, as Maine goes, so goes the nation. Now, Democrats joked, as Maine goes, so goes Vermont. A powerful new Democratic majority emerged in 1936. Known as the New Deal Coalition, it dominated national politics for decades. It included the traditionally Democratic South, along with urban ethnic voters, farmers, and organized labor, whose ranks were growing rapidly with the help of the Wagner Act. African Americans were the final group in this coalition. Closely allied with the party of Lincoln since the Civil War, black voters moved decisively to the party of FDR in 1936. FDR received 60.8% of the popular vote and 523 electoral votes. His opponent, Alfred Landon, received 36.5% of the popular vote and only eight electoral votes. In the House of Representatives, Democrats gained 12 seats to a total of 331, compared to 89 Republican and 13 other seats. In the Senate, Democrats gained 7 seats to a total of 76, compared to just 16 Republican and 4 other party seats. To the left of the photograph, another panel reads, Snapshots of a Nation. The nation's economy and government were very different in 1936 than when FDR assumed office in 1933. The federal government was vastly expanded, with new agencies and programs touching nearly every aspect of the economy. Both the federal budget 
and the budget deficit had grown. After years of precipitous decline during the Hoover administration, the nation's economy was growing again. America's gross national product, GNP, was rising, and stock prices were up. Unemployment remained stubbornly high, but it had fallen significantly since the grim days of 1933. From this display, turn left and walk about three feet forward. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. You have entered the next room of the museum, delving into FDR's second term. The room is about 20 feet long by 12 feet wide. An 8 feet tall blue panel stands on a 45 degree angle in the center of the room, about 4 feet in front of you. There is a similarly oriented second blue panel, standing about 5 feet beyond the first one. Large displays cover the left and right walls, with a small theater at the end of the room. Walk about four feet forward to the first of the two standalone panels, which reads, Second Term Setbacks. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. Franklin D. Roosevelt, Inaugural Address, January 20th, 1937. FDR's landslide re-election seemed to herald a new chapter for the New Deal. Elected with expanded Democratic majorities in Congress, the president planned an ambitious second-term agenda. With the economy seemingly on a firm recovery track, Roosevelt turned his attention to deeper problems he saw in the nation. In his inaugural address, he spoke movingly about the country's least fortunate. I see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished, he declared. He challenged Americans to end this poverty. But FDR's plans soon went awry. Lost with victory, the emboldened president overreached. A divisive battle with the Supreme Court and an unsuccessful effort to purge conservatives from the Democratic Party energized his opponents. Economic setbacks added to his woes. FDR's reform agenda stalled, and events overseas began to take his administration in a very different direction. A giant line graph stretches down the entire left wall of the gallery for about 15 feet. The graph charts deficit spending and unemployment from 1933 to 1942. To listen to more information about this exhibit, please press 520 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please turn left about two feet and turn right to walk about 12 feet forward down the left-hand side of the gallery. An angled ledge with displays juts out from the wall about 12 inches. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 520, Deficit Spending and Unemployment. Turn left and walk about four feet to the beginning of the display. Introductory text reads, Deficit Spending and Unemployment. Government spending and deficits became a major issue early in FDR's second term. Administration decisions about spending and drastic consequences 
consequences that spurred debate about the connection between government expenditures and economic growth. That debate continues today. Government spending over time is shown along the bottom of the graph in blue in billions of dollars, while the unemployment percentage of the civilian labor force is shown with a red line at the top. At the bottom of the graph is a series of text panels at waist level which jut out from the wall on an angle about 12 inches. Beginning in 1933, when FDR takes office, the graph shows government spending totaled $4.6 billion, with an unemployment rate of 24.9%. Government spending rises steadily to $8.4 billion in 1936, with a corresponding decrease in the unemployment rate to 16.9%. This was due to FDR vastly expanding the federal government's role in the nation's economy. About five feet along, on the left, the graph shows how the unprecedented jobs programs like the CCC and WPA put millions of people to work. In 1937, FDR believed the economy had turned a corner and federal stimulus spending was no longer needed. The results were disastrous. A decrease in spending through 1938 yielded a 19% unemployment rate. As spending fell and interest rates rose, economic activity dropped steeply, leading FDR's critics to call it the Roosevelt Recession. FDR reversed course in 1938 to align with the new theories of economist John Maynard Keynes, who argued governments should run large budget deficits during recessions to stimulate demand. Four feet further down the line to September 1939, when World War II began, FDR increased defense spending to prepare the nation should it be drawn into the conflict. As military spending rose, the government ran ever larger budget deficits, stimulating activity throughout the American economy. Unemployment fell from 19% in 1938 to 9.9% in 1941, with government spending rising to $13.3 billion in 1941 when America entered the war. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Turn to your left at the end of the graph display to face a video screen about waist high on an angled ledge that juts out about 12 inches from the wall. This is another Confront the Issue interactive touchscreen exhibit entitled The New Deal, Did It Work? A two feet wide by one foot tall video touchscreen covers the left area of this display panel. To listen to the additional information contained in this exhibit, please press 521 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 521, the New Deal. Did it work? Text reads, Did the New Deal help to end the Great Depression, or did it prolong it? Did it go too far in regulating financial markets and creating a social safety net for Americans? Or should it have done more? What is the proper role of the federal government in the nation's economy? 
Today, fundamental economic questions raised during the New Deal years remain at the center of our political life. Historians, economists, and political commentators agree that FDR profoundly changed America's government and economy. But they disagree, often passionately, about his legacy. Touch the screen to view excerpts from the continuing debate about this innovative and controversial chapter in our history. The rest of the descriptions in this exhibit consist of a series of book quotes, each addressing the central question about the New Deal. Did it work? You may continue listening to these quotes or press the right arrow key on your audio tour player to exit this layer of recorded information and continue with the rest of the tour. The New Deal. Did it work? Book quotes. Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. writes in his 1960 book, The Age of Roosevelt, The Politics of Upheaval. As Roosevelt saw it, he was safeguarding the constitutional system by carrying through reforms long overdue. He regarded the nation as an estate to be improved for those who would eventually inherit it. In his 1984 book, The Great Depression, America, 1929-1941, Robert S. McIlvain writes, The early New Deal made important changes in the American economic setup, but not drastic ones. Roosevelt tried to work within the existing power system, not to transform it. In his 2003 book, FDR's Folly, How Roosevelt and His New Deal Prolonged the Great Depression, Jim Powell writes, The New Deal did plenty to prolong high unemployment. New Deal policies were dubious when considered from the standpoint of their effects. In 2007, Amity Schles writes in her book, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. One of the most famous Roosevelt phrases in history, almost as famous as fear itself, was Roosevelt's boast that he would promulgate bold, persistent experimentation. But Roosevelt's commitment to experimentation itself created fear. In his book, The New Deal, The Depression Years, 1933 to 1940, Anthony Badger writes in 1989 that, in the end, The New Deal was essentially a holding operation for American society because in the democratic, capitalist United States, that was what most Americans wanted it to be. William E. Luchtenberg writes in his 1963 book, The Age of Roosevelt, The Politics of Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, 1932-1940. The havoc that had been done before Roosevelt took office was so great that even the unprecedented measures of the New Deal did not suffice to repair the damage. When recovery did come, during World War II, it was much more soundly based because of the adoption of the New Deal program. In his book, Freedom from Fear, The American People in Depression and War, 1929-1945, David M. Kennedy writes in 1999 that, The New Deal erected an institutional scaffolding designed to provide unprecedented stability and predictability for the American economy. In time, that edifice would serve as the latticework on which the post-war economy grew.
Stephen Moore writes in his 2008 book, New Deal or Raw Deal, how FDR's economic legacy has damaged America. The greatest and most enduring economic myth of the 20th century is the idea that Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal pulled America out of the Great Depression. In 2006, Jonathan Alter wrote The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope, and states that the result of FDR's efforts was a new social contract that has informally bound his successors to confront major domestic and international problems, rather than leave them entirely to the marketplace or to other nations. In his 2009 book, Nothing to Fear, FDR's Inner Circle and the Hundred Days that Created Modern America, Adam Cohen writes, The explosion of new legislation during the Hundred Days transformed vast swaths of American life, from banking to agriculture to public welfare. The relationship between the American people and their government would never be the same again. In 1996, Alan Brinkley wrote, The End of Reform, New Deal Liberalism in Recession and War, saying, The New Deal was promoting recovery through deficit financing, but haltingly, penuriously, and largely inadvertently, as the unintended result of policies designed to achieve other ends. And finally, in his 2011 book, The New Deal, A Modern History, Michael Hiltzik writes, The New Deal was a work in progress from its beginning to its end, when it yielded to preparations for war. Its principles and institutions still are works in progress, the bait over them ongoing. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Facing the interactive display, turn around 180 degrees and walk about six feet on a 45-degree angle to the right and turn left. Here is the second central eight-feet-tall blue wall panel with text discussing FDR's efforts to remake the Supreme Court and his subsequent attempted purge of party conservatives in 1938. To listen to additional information about these costly political miscalculations, please press 522 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 522, FDR's Supreme Court fight and the 1938 party purge. During FDR's first term, the Supreme Court became a major threat to the New Deal. A conservative 5-4 to four court majority disapproved of FDR's expansion of federal power. In 1935-36, to 36, these justices began striking down key New Deal laws, including the NRA and AAA, as unconstitutional. FDR feared future rulings would overturn other reforms, including Social Security. In 1937, Roosevelt moved to remake the court. He requested legislation empowering him to add up to six new justices for every current justice over age 70. Outraged critics charged he wanted to pack the court. The Senate 
buried FDR's proposal in committee. The outcome of the court fight was FDR's greatest legislative defeat, but it became apparent that while he lost the battle, he won the war. During 1937, one conservative justice switched allegiances and began supporting New Deal legislation. This switch and later court retirements let FDR shape a pro-New Deal majority without radical change. From 1937 until the 1990s, the court consistently supported a broad reading of federal power in the economy. On the right side of the same panel is a block of text describing the 1938 Hardy Purge. FDR's battle with the Supreme Court was one of two rare and costly political miscalculations he made during his second term. In the wake of his massive 1936 re-election victory, the president also declared war on conservative Democrats. In 1938, he organized primary challenges to a group of important Southern and Midwestern congressional Democrats who opposed his court plan and further expansion of the New Deal. FDR aimed to realign the Democratic Party around a thoroughly liberal political ideology. Roosevelt's attempted purge of party conservatives was unsuccessful. All but one of his conservative targets easily defeated the reform candidate backed by the president. When the Republicans scored major victories in the fall 1938 general election, a strong anti-New Deal alliance of Republicans and conservative Democrats emerged in Congress. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Turn left 45 degrees and walk around the left of this panel, turn right, and move about six feet forward to the entrance of a small theater video exhibit called The Enduring New Deal. The film explains how the New Deal has influenced all aspects of our daily lives. To enter the theater and listen to the additional information about this topic in the film, please press 523 on your audio player. You can press the pause button at any time to listen to the film. If you choose not to view this film, please turn right and walk about four feet and turn right. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 523, The Enduring New Deal. Text reads, FDR's New Deal didn't end the Great Depression. It took the huge government spending of World War II to fully restore prosperity. But the New Deal's achievements were immense. Roosevelt's unprecedented use of government prevented the collapse of American capitalism in 1933. The New Deal reduced the Depression's hardships and created an economic safety net for Americans. The regulatory safeguards it erected helped cushion later crises. Most important, Roosevelt created the expectation that the federal government has a responsibility to take an active role in ensuring the economic security of all Americans. Today, the New Deal's influence is all around us, in our financial markets, infrastructure, work lives, and retirement years. Controversial in its day, the New Deal also endures in our continuing national debate about the role of government in economic life.
Program length, six minutes. Enter the theater through an open doorway about three feet to your left. The theater is about 12 feet deep with two wooden benches offset from one another in the center of the room. There is an exit doorway eight feet to your right at the back left of the theater. After the film, exit through the doorway at the back left of the theater and walk about four feet on a 45 degree angle to your right and turn left 45 degrees. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. You're standing at the back of the second central tall blue panel in the room in front of an exhibit about race relations in the era. To listen to additional information about Roosevelt and race, please press 524 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please turn left and walk about four feet. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 524, Roosevelt and African Americans. If I came out for the anti-lynching bill now, they, Southern Democrats, will block every bill I ask Congress to pass to keep America from collapsing. I just can't take that risk. Franklin Roosevelt to leaders of the NAACP, 1936. FDR's New Deal provided vital economic assistance to African Americans, but it rarely challenged widespread racial segregation and discrimination in 1930s America. The administration wasn't hostile to black Americans, but FDR needed the support of powerful Southern Democrats in Congress to enact his economic agenda. To keep their support, he distanced himself from efforts to ban the poll tax and make lynching a federal crime. With Eleanor Roosevelt's strong encouragement, FDR appointed blacks to significant second-tier positions in his administration, creating the so-called Black Cabinet. And some prominent New Dealers, urged on by ER, worked to ensure relief programs didn't exclude blacks. But they often accommodated, or were unable to overcome, existing patterns of discrimination. The CCC established separate black camps. The WPA relegated blacks and Hispanics to low-paying jobs. The FHA refused mortgages to blacks moving into white neighborhoods. And federally financed public housing was racially segregated. Directly underneath this panel is another Confront the Issue interactive flipbook entitled Roosevelt and Race. During the 1930s, African Americans ended their long allegiance to the Republican Party, which dated back to the days of Abraham Lincoln, and became a reliable Democratic voting bloc. Yet despite this overwhelming support, FDR did not become a champion of civil rights. Roosevelt recognized the grievances of African Americans, but believed his New Deal reforms would be jeopardized if he took advanced positions on race. There was little active support for civil rights reform among Northern whites, and white Southerners were deeply opposed. FDR's ability to get legislation through Congress depended upon the support of long-serving Southern Democrats, who chaired many key committees. 
Later, as World War II approached, he would need the same Southern Committee chairman to overcome isolationists in Congress who opposed increased defense spending and aid to Britain. Increasingly, FDR found himself caught between two important Democratic constituencies with conflicting agendas. His dilemma came into bold relief in 1940 when African-American labor leader A. Philip Randolph threatened to lead a massive march on Washington to protest racial discrimination in defense industries. Eleanor Roosevelt supported Randolph and helped arrange an Oval Office meeting with FDR. At that meeting, FDR tried to persuade Randolph to abandon his threat. But when he stood firm, the president agreed to issue an executive order creating the Fair Employment Practices Commission, the FEPC. The FEPC was empowered to investigate and overturn race discrimination in industries engaged in military production. Roosevelt never agreed to African-American leaders' demand that he end racial discrimination in America's armed forces. But World War II provided FDR with opportunities to take action against discrimination without having to go to Congress and to create an environment in which minorities could advance in the military. In 1940, Benjamin O. Davis, Sr., became the Army's first black brigadier general. During the war, blacks were admitted to the Marine Corps for the first time, and the Army Air Corps ended its ban on black pilots. With strong public support from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, nearly 1,000 black pilots were trained at Alabama's Tuskegee Institute. Many of the Tuskegee Airmen served in North Africa and Europe in the all-black 99th Pursuit Squadron. The following material includes reproductions of selected documents from the FDR library and excerpts of the historical debate that relate to FDR and African Americans. You may continue listening to these quotes or press the right arrow key on your audio tour player to exit this layer of information and continue with the rest of the tour. Section 1, African Americans and the New Deal. Caption, Eleanor Roosevelt visits a Work Progress Administration nursery school for African American children in Des Moines, Iowa, June 8, 1936. The following documents relate to the New Deal and the African-American experience in general. Document 1.1, Harry Hopkins' letter about FDR's statement on the WPA. June 17, 1935. Though the New Deal provided assistance to African-Americans, this aid was often administered in a discriminatory manner. FDR felt constrained by the anti-civil rights attitudes of powerful Southern congressional leaders whose support he needed for his legislative program. Consequently, domestic and agricultural workers, fields in which blacks were disproportionately represented, were often excluded from New Deal reforms such as Social Security and minimum wage laws. Some agricultural reforms unintentionally worsened the plight of southern sharecroppers and tenant farmers. Blacks were employed in the Civilian Conservation Corps and other work programs, but they were often segregated in low-skill, low-paying jobs. 
Some New Deal administrators were sympathetic to civil rights issues, including Harry Hopkins of the Works Progress Administration, Aubrey Williams of the National Youth Administration, and Harold Ickes of the Public Works Administration. They worked to eradicate discrimination in their programs. In this 1935 letter to White House Press Secretary Stephen Early, Hopkins suggests some anti-discrimination talking points for President Roosevelt to make in a presentation to WPA administrators. Document 1.2A-2B Eleanor Roosevelt's Memo to FDR and Letter to Mary McLeod Bethune November 22nd through the 27th, 1941 Despite its shortcomings, the New Deal provided opportunities for African Americans to serve in government in small but unprecedented numbers. Sympathetic New Deal officials appointed African Americans as special advisors to help focus aid efforts on the black community. This so-called black cabinet met periodically to steer the administration towards more inclusive policies. Mary McLeod Bethune of the National Youth Administration was a leader of this group and a close friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. At Bethune's urging, Mrs. Roosevelt sent this memo to FDR asking him to appoint an African-American to a high position in government to advise on issues important to blacks. FDR's handwritten response reads, No, any more than I can put in a Jew as such or a spiritualist as such. FDR. At the bottom is Mrs. Roosevelt's instruction to her secretary on drafting a reply to Bethune. Section 2. FDR and Anti-Lynching Legislation. Caption. One of the great stains on FDR's civil rights record is his failure to actively support federal anti-lynching legislation. As horrific cases of lynching spiked throughout the South and other parts of the country, private organizations worked to prevent them, while Eleanor Roosevelt and civil rights leaders urged FDR to take action. The following documents relate to the subject of FDR and anti-lynching legislation. Document 2.1, Letter to FDR from Walter White of the NAACP, May 1, 1934. As the Great Depression deepened, the number of lynchings of African-American men increased. Most lynchings took place in the South, although incidents did occur in other parts of the country. Such murders were left to state and local officials to prosecute, but toxic notions of white supremacy and Jim Crow discrimination laws resulted in the failure to bring perpetrators to justice. This crisis led to calls for a federal anti-lynching law, known as the Costigan-Wagner Bill, allowing federal law enforcement to step in when state and local officials failed. Walter White, head of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, was one of the bill's strongest advocates. But the legislation needed FDR support to get a vote in Congress. After consulting with Eleanor Roosevelt, White wrote this impassioned letter to the president. FDR did not respond. Document 2.2, text of proposed NAACP press release, May 11, 1934. As the 1934 congressional session neared its end, NAACP leader Walter White desperately sought a meeting with FDR to gain his support for anti-lynching legislation. Eleanor Roosevelt 
arranged a White House tea with her and FDR on May 7, 1934. The president told E.R. and White that while he privately supported the bill, he would do nothing to stop an expected Senate filibuster. He could not challenge his party's Southern leadership in Congress on this issue, he said, without risking his entire New Deal program. Refusing to be discouraged, White focused on FDR's personal support for the bill. He sent this draft press release to White House Press Secretary Stephen Early for approval. Instead, Early had the draft filed without reply. No further action was taken on the bill before the 1934 session ended. Document 2.3, Memorial Petition to FDR to Support Anti-Lynching Legislation, December 1934. As the 1935 congressional session approached, Eleanor Roosevelt and Walter White of the NAACP renewed their pressure on President Roosevelt to back the Costigan-Wagner anti-lynching legislation. To demonstrate that the bill had broad public support, White circulated this petition, or memorial, among sympathetic governors, mayors, college presidents, newspaper editors, pastors, judges, and private organizations. White hoped to present the petition in person to the president in late December 1934, before the opening session of the new Congress. The meeting never took place, and the petition was buried in the White House files. Document 2.4, Memorandum for Stephen Early, April 25, 1935. On January 4, 1935, FDR introduced an ambitious legislative agenda for the year. The NAACP's Walter White was bitterly disappointed that it did not include an anti-lynching bill. Still, White continued his efforts to pass the bill when it was reintroduced in the new Congress. Throughout the spring, he and Eleanor Roosevelt unsuccessfully urged the president to prevent another Senate filibuster. When the filibuster began in late April, White appealed to the White House for a presidential meeting. However, FDR's staff, sensitive to the damage Southern Democrats could do to the president's agenda, blocked White's access. As this memo reveals, White's request first went to Press Secretary Stephen Early, Presidential Political Secretary Marvin McIntyre, known as Mac, also weighed in, recommending that FDR not meet with White. The president responded, Mac is right, FDR. Anti-lynching legislation did not pass in 1935, but the Social Security Act, National Labor Relations Act, and other hallmark New Deal reforms did. Document 2.5, Letter from Mary McLeod Bethune to FDR, January 18, 1940. Anti-lynching legislation was repeatedly introduced in Congress, only to fail because of a Senate filibuster by Southern Democrats. In a dramatic moment in 1937, Eleanor Roosevelt sat in the Senate galleries throughout a seven-day filibuster before the bill once again went down to defeat. By 1938, the NAACP and Walter White concluded that a federal anti-lynching law simply would not pass and gave less priority to it. However, other groups continue to push for the law, as seen in this 1940 letter from Eleanor Roosevelt's close friend and civil rights leader, Mary McLeod Bethune. Anti-lynching legislation 
never became law during Roosevelt's presidency. Section 3, FDR and the poll tax. Caption, African Americans were almost universally disenfranchised in southern states. As late as 1940, less than 5% of eligible black voters were registered. A common tool used to keep African Americans from voting was the poll tax, which placed an economic burden on poor blacks. If they could not pay the tax, they could not vote. The following documents relate to FDR and the poll tax issue. Document 3.1, Petition to the President of the United States, 1942. Throughout the 1930s, FDR was frustrated by the conservative southern wing of his party. Roosevelt believed that the poll tax was a major cause of the continued dominance of conservatives in the South. It disenfranchised African Americans who were supportive of the New Deal. In a March 1938 speech in Gainesville, Georgia, FDR condemned the South's feudal system, likening it to fascist movements in Europe. If you believe in the one, you lean to the other. As America's entry into World War II began to break down existing social barriers, a campaign to abolish the poll tax gained strength, as reflected in this petition sent to the White House in 1942. Document 3.2, Memo from Malvina C. Thompson to Jonathan Daniels, March 11, 1945. In November 1942, FDR sent a memo to Attorney General Francis Biddle suggesting that poll taxes were unconstitutional because poor people who could not pay the tax were denied access to the voting booth. If Congress would not abolish the poll tax nationwide, he wrote, then each state's poll tax restrictions should be challenged in court. The president suggested that the question of race need not be raised in any way, on the ground that in poll tax states, a very large number of whites, as well as Negroes, are in effect denied the right to vote. The attorney general did not pursue FDR's suggested court actions. However, both FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt supported ongoing efforts to repeal the poll tax at the state level. In this 1945 memo to White House Secretary Jonathan Daniels, Eleanor's personal secretary, Malvina C. Thompson, informs the president of a new anti-poll tax campaign in Alabama. Section 4, the March on Washington and Executive Order 8802. Caption, as war mobilization began to lift the nation out of the depression, discrimination by industry and labor excluded many African Americans from the full benefits of the economic boom. Civil rights leaders threatened a march on Washington. In response, on June 25, 1941, FDR issued Executive Order 8802, barring racial discrimination in defense industries. The following documents relate to FDR, the March on Washington, and Executive Order 8802. Document 4.1, FDR's exchange of memos with William Knudsen, May 26-28, 1941. One of the most influential civil rights leaders of the 1930s and 1940s was A. Philip Randolph of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, an all-black union of railroad workers. Outraged by stories of new defense plants refusing to hire qualified African Americans over less qualified whites, Randolph was determined to take action. 
In early 1941, Randolph announced his intention to organize a march on Washington. When FDR learned from Eleanor Roosevelt of well-educated blacks only finding work as janitors and cleaners in defense plants, he sent this memo to William Knudsen and Sidney Hillman at the Office of Production Management, the agency overseeing the defense industry. Knudsen replied that OPM would quietly try to get plant managers to increase the number of African-American workers. Document 4.2, FDR's memo for Marvin McIntyre, June 7, 1941. The administration's promise to quietly increase the number of African-Americans in defense plants failed to satisfy A. Philip Randolph, Eleanor Roosevelt, and others. FDR felt more and more pressure as the July 1st date for the March on Washington neared. Dr. F. O. Williston, a prominent black leader in Washington, D.C., contacted the White House and asked for a meeting to discuss African-American issues in the military and in defense work. In this memo to presidential political secretary Marvin McIntyre, known as Mac, FDR expresses his increasing frustration at the situation and recommends telling Williston that the best contribution he could make to relieving tensions over race issues is to stop that march. Document 4.3, Memorandum for the President, June 14, 1941. As pressure mounted on the White House and the march on Washington neared, FDR asked Aubrey Williams, the liberal head of the National Youth Administration, to organize a meeting in New York City with Eleanor Roosevelt, New York Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, Anna Rosenberg of the Social Security Board, and black leaders A. Philip Randolph and the NAACP's Walter White. Williams's job was to get the March on Washington stopped. From FDR's point of view, the results were unsatisfactory, as can be seen in this memo to the president from Secretary Edwin M. Watson. Watson relays Mayor LaGuardia's opinion that the only thing that could stop the march would be a high-level meeting at the White House attended by the president and other officials. FDR agreed, and a meeting was scheduled for June 18, 1941. Document 4.4, Proposals of the Negro March on Washington Committee to President Roosevelt, circa June 18, 1941. At the June 18, 1941 meeting at the White House, FDR first tried to distract his visitors with anecdotes and stories. A. Philip Randolph, the leader of the March on Washington effort, would have none of it, stating simply, Mr. President, time is running out. He asked the president to issue an executive order banning discrimination in the defense industry. FDR countered that, he couldn't do anything until the March on Washington was canceled. Randolph replied that it could not be called off and that he expected 100,000 marchers to arrive in Washington in less than two weeks. With talks at an impasse, New York Mayor LaGuardia suggested that they begin working on a formula that would resolve the issue. The black leaders and government officials adjourned to the cabinet room to work on a proposed solution. Among the sticking points, as can be seen in this document, was the civil rights leader's demand that any executive order not just ban discrimination in the defense industry, but also in the military and the federal government. The president told LaGuardia that this was a deal-breaker. 
Document 4.5, Executive Order 8802, June 25, 1941. One week after the White House meeting, a compromise was reached. FDR would issue an executive order banning racial discrimination in the hiring of workers in all industries engaged in defense production. The order also would contain general, but not legally binding language, opposing discrimination in the federal government. This carefully crafted wording satisfied most sides, including Eleanor Roosevelt, who encouraged A. Philip Randolph to accept the deal. FDR signed Executive Order 8802 on June 25, 1941. In return, Randolph canceled the March on Washington. Although EO 8802 was issued grudgingly by FDR, it is viewed today as an important step in the early civil rights movement and helped bring the economic benefits of the war boom to the nation's African-American citizens. Document 4.6, A. Philip Randolph's Letter to FDR, June 30, 1941. An important part of banning discrimination in defense industries was the manner in which such a ban would be enforced. Executive Order 8802 included a provision establishing a Fair Employment Practices Committee, FEPC, authorized to investigate and remedy any discriminatory practices. In this letter to FDR, sent after EO 8802 was signed, March on Washington leader A. Philip Randolph was grateful that the FEPC had been established, but concerned about the committee's membership. Randolph asked that he and NAACP Executive Secretary Walter White be allowed input on appointees to the FEPC. The five-member committee appointed by FDR on July 18, 1941, included two African Americans. Document 4.7, Presidential Memorandum to Government Department Heads, September 3, 1941. As the work of the FEPC began to reduce discrimination in defense industries, it made discrimination in some parts of the government all the more glaring. Although FDR was resistant to issuing an executive order banning discrimination outright throughout the federal government, on September 3, 1941, he issued this memorandum to all the heads of government departments and agencies. It urges them to review their work practices to ensure that, in the federal service, the doors of employment are open to all loyal and qualified workers, regardless of creed, race, or national origin. Section 5. The Detroit Race Riots of 1943. Caption. The war boom and Executive Order 8802 drew African-American workers to northern cities and southern workplaces in unprecedented numbers. Racial tensions increased as blacks and whites competed for jobs in housing. In the spring and summer of 1943, race riots broke out across the country, the worst in Detroit in June 1943. The following documents relate to FDR and the 1943 Detroit race riots. Document 5.1, FDR's Memorandum to Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson, June 21, 1943. The race riot in Detroit began on Sunday, 
June 20th, 1943, in a public park known as Belle Isle that was frequented mostly by African Americans. On that hot summer day, the park was filled to capacity with nearly 100,000 people. Fights began to break out between whites and blacks on the approaches to the park. Rumors began to circulate of black women and children being killed. Roving gangs of both blacks and whites roamed the streets. Michigan Governor Harry Kelly insisted that local police could handle the crisis, but by the next day, it was obvious that the situation was out of control. He asked President Roosevelt for federal assistance to end the riots. In response, FDR issued an anti-insurrection proclamation and then sent this memorandum to Secretary of War Henry Stimson, directing that federal troops be used to bring order to Detroit. 3,800 troops arrived at 11 a.m., and by late afternoon, peace had been restored. By the time the violence ended, nearly 1,000 people had been injured, and 25 African Americans and nine whites were dead. Document 5.2, letter to FDR from New York City Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, June 27, 1943. After federal troops had calmed the situation in Detroit, the press and public officials began to explore the causes of the riots. In this letter to FDR, New York City Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia urged the president to leave troops in place in Detroit so that the discontent would not spread to other population centers. In reality, many issues came together to cause the outbreak of violence. In particular, Detroit's population had grown exponentially as a result of the defense industry. In just two years, the city had added 250,000 people, including 150,000 African Americans, to its population of over 2 million. Because of this growth, blacks and whites competed over inadequate housing, transportation, and recreation sites. Eleanor Roosevelt was particularly disturbed by the Detroit riots and by increased racial violence everywhere, telling a friend, Detroit should never have happened. However, FDR's fear of alienating Southern Democrats in Congress prevented him from speaking out or taking corrective action, and racial tensions continued to simmer throughout the war. Section 6, African Americans in the Military. Caption, before and during World War II, FDR was pressured to allow African Americans to serve in the military on an equal basis with whites. Facing strong opposition from military leaders and Congress, FDR refused to desegregate the armed forces. But the war did provide him, and Eleanor Roosevelt, with opportunities to take action against discrimination. Document 6.1, Eleanor Roosevelt's Memorandum to FDR, September 1940. In September 1940, A. Philip Randolph of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, Walter White of the NAACP, and Arnold Hill of the Urban League asked Eleanor Roosevelt to help arrange a meeting with the president. They wanted to press FDR to eliminate discrimination in the armed forces. In this memo, Eleanor urges FDR to meet with the black leaders immediately. A meeting was arranged in the Oval Office for September 27, 1940, 
with Navy Secretary Frank Knox and Assistant Secretary of War Robert Patterson in attendance. The black leaders left with the impression that FDR agreed with them, at least on some points. They were disappointed when, days later, the government announced it would continue its discriminatory practices in the military with only minor changes. Document 6.2, letter to Eleanor Roosevelt from F.D. Patterson, president of Tuskegee Institute, July 26, 1941. Eleanor Roosevelt was a longtime supporter and patron of the Tuskegee Institute, a black college in Tuskegee, Alabama, founded by Booker T. Washington. After FDR's meeting with African-American leaders at the White House in September 1940, the Army established an aviation training program for blacks at Tuskegee. Mrs. Roosevelt was keenly interested in this program, as can be seen in this letter to ER from Tuskegee Institute's president, F.D. Patterson. Earlier that year, Mrs. Roosevelt had traveled to Tuskegee and taken a ride in a Piper Cub airplane with Charles A. Anderson. The photographs of her flight with a black pilot caused the sensation in both white and African-American press outlets. The 99th Pursuit Squadron, known as the Tuskegee Airmen, served with great distinction in North Africa, Italy, and Germany. Document 6.3, Eleanor Roosevelt's exchange of letters with Cecil Peterson, May 28th through July 7th, 1942. Eleanor Roosevelt continued her support of the Tuskegee Airmen after the United States entered the war. In 1942, she began corresponding with a young African-American trainee at the Tuskegee Institute, Cecil Peterson. Mrs. Roosevelt had met Peterson years before while visiting a New Deal project in Quaddy, Maine. They continued their exchange of letters throughout the war, and Mrs. Roosevelt was even able to meet Peterson on one of her trips to visit troops overseas. Document 6.4, Eleanor Roosevelt's letter to Evans C. Johnson, September 18, 1942. The war changed the traditional social structure in the United States. As African Americans began to press for equal treatment in defense work, military service, housing, and other areas, many whites grew increasingly uncomfortable. They searched for someone to blame for causing this massive change, and Eleanor Roosevelt, whose sympathy for black civil rights was well publicized, became a target of their anger. In this reply to an outraged citizen, Mrs. Roosevelt explains her support for African Americans in the context of the war being fought overseas. Paralleling FDR's Four Freedoms, ER states her own four fundamental rights for African Americans at home. The right to an education, to earn a living, and to equal justice before the law, and the right to vote. Document 6.5, Memos to the President on Treatment of Returned Negro Military Personnel, September 20th through 21st, 1944. African-American servicemen, many of whom had fought next to white soldiers in combat, expected to be treated with dignity and respect when they returned to the United States. But the military's segregationist policies extended to the return and redistribution centers set up to help veterans transition to civilian life. 
in this memo to FDR, Secretary of War Henry Stimson makes the case for separate but equal facilities for returning black servicemen. Because Stimson's memo came in the midst of the 1944 election campaign, presidential advisor Jonathan Daniels wrote a counter-memo to make sure that FDR was aware of the politically sensitive nature of the issue. Document 6.6, Petition to Bury Jim Crowism, October 1944. Throughout the war, African-American leaders continued to press for an end to discrimination at home and in the armed forces. They believed that discrimination in the military and at home, including the Jim Crow laws of the South, were inconsistent with the ideals for which the United Nations were fighting. During the 1944 presidential campaign, A. Philip Randolph and his March on Washington movement circulated petitions like this one, urging the president to use his powers as commander-in-chief to ban discrimination and segregation in the government and military, abolish the poll tax, and protect the right to vote. FDR and African Americans book excerpts. Lauren Rebecca Sklaroff, Black Culture and the New Deal, The Quest for Civil Rights in the Roosevelt Era, University of North Carolina Press, 2009, pages 1 and 2. A powerful Southern congressional bloc influenced the executive treatment of race relations during the Depression and World War II. Four years after Franklin Roosevelt's death, Eleanor Roosevelt remembered her frustrations when racial issues such as the anti-lynching bill and the abolition of the poll tax reached her husband's desk. Although Franklin was in favor of both measures, they never became must legislation. When I would protest, he would simply say, first things come first, and I can't alienate certain votes I need for measures that are more important at the moment by pushing any measure that would entail a fight. A powerful Southern congressional bloc influenced the executive treatment of race relations during the Depression and World War II. To the chagrin of many civil rights leaders, the support of this Southern contingency always outweighed the administration's commitment to endorsing measures that would explicitly improve political, economic, and social conditions of black Americans. Still, the federal government did not completely ignore civil rights in this politically explosive atmosphere. One important method that the Roosevelt administration employed to acknowledge African Americans and to involve them in the president's New Deal was through federally sponsored cultural programs. Initially conceived under the Works Progress Administration's Federal Arts Project, and then continued under wartime agencies such as the Office of War Information and the War Department, fine art and media-based programs represented an important strand of civil rights policy during the Roosevelt era. Through these programs, liberal administrators demonstrated a sustained commitment to addressing the concerns of black Americans when political pragmatism prevented official support for structural legislation. Joyce A. Hansen, Mary McLeod Bethune, and Black Women's Political Activism, University of Missouri Press, 2003, pages 125 to 126 and 131. FDR appointed more black leaders to important posts than ever. 
By the 1930s, African Americans were in dire need of a New Deal, and many black leaders eagerly looked to the Roosevelt administration for the support they needed to achieve economic, political, and social equality. Roosevelt inspired many blacks when he appointed a number of men as agency heads who openly and aggressively committed themselves to the cause of social justice and civil rights for black Americans. African Americans expected the Roosevelt administration to support their continuing struggle for increased employment opportunities, economic security, and the protection of civil rights. However, the implementation and effects of many early New Deal programs did not always reassure them. Discriminatory implementation of many programs at the local level circumscribed material progress, but the psychological benefits that accrued to the black community as a whole were extensive. For the first time, they saw the federal government hiring African Americans for a number of important positions. The Roosevelt administration hired black professionals as architects, lawyers, statisticians, economists, and engineers within the federal government. Non-professionals filled positions as stenographers, secretaries, messengers, elevator operators, and clerks. FDR appointed more black leaders to important posts than ever. Mary Poole the Segregated Origins of Social Security, African Americans, and the Welfare State. University of North Carolina Press, 2006, pages 174 through 176. African Americans were discriminated against, not because they were targeted by racist intent, but because Social Security rewarded those who were already privileged. How did African Americans become discriminated against through the Social Security Act? African Americans were discriminated against not because they were targeted by racist intent, but because Social Security rewarded those who were already privileged. It gave priority to the dignity and economic security of the working class's top tier, those who were most secure in jobs from which African Americans were barred. The study of discriminatory treatment of African Americans through public policy in the 1930s has been framed as a fight primarily waged between groups of white people, one group with altruistic motives, defending the rights of African Americans, the other group, self-interested, seeking to limit those rights. But this model does not fit the story of the Social Security Act. The act was designed by reformers whose intent was primarily altruistic. They did not set out to enhance their own power and wealth. Nevertheless, they benefited from the policy that they created as white men and women. The salvation of white industrial workers was predicated on constructing them as something other than welfare recipients and other than black workers. By enhancing the value of whiteness of industrial workers, the act's framers enhanced the value of their own whiteness. The discriminatory policy created through the Social Security Act resulted more from the positioning of the act's framers within the U.S. racial hierarchy than their intent. Kevin J. McMahon, Reconsidering Roosevelt on Race, How the Presidency Paved the Road to Brown. University of Chicago Press, 2004, pages 175 to 176. 
Franklin Roosevelt displayed what might be described as fits of courage in dealing with the challenge to the Southern way of life and the corresponding drive to secure civil rights. The activities of the Roosevelt Justice Department did much to shape judicial doctrine in the post-war era. With its call for activism to federally secure and protect the rights of African Americans, the department helped the Roosevelt Court to lay the precedential cornerstone of its new civil rights doctrine. To be sure, FDR was neither a consistent nor a vocal proponent of civil rights reform. His pro-civil rights decisions were often buffered by others in which he balked at progressive efforts in order to ease tensions within the Democratic Party. In sum, he displayed what might be described as fits of courage in dealing with the challenge to the Southern way of life and the corresponding drive to secure civil rights. When civil rights proposals appeared to also advance his broader institutional goals of a national government dominated by a progressive presidency or electoral goals of a more liberal coalition, he often supported them energetically. When they did not, he took few public chances, preferring instead to work subtly, which usually meant slowly, behind the scenes or not at all. Nevertheless, the full story of FDR's successes in civil rights is more elaborate than the one typically told. Despite the presence of the Dixiecrat-dominated leadership in Congress and the South's significance in the New Deal electoral coalition, the Roosevelt administration was able to help forge the Supreme Court's mission after 1937. In turn, the Roosevelt justices sought to carry out what the president had failed to achieve in the 1938 elections. Southern Democrats survived FDR's purge, but Southern democracy would not escape the rulings of the Roosevelt-Warren court. David M. Kennedy, Freedom from Fear, The American People in Depression and War, 1929 through 1945. Oxford University Press, 1999, pages 765 to 768. Now for the first time since Reconstruction, the federal government had openly committed itself to making good on at least some of the promises of American life for black citizens. The continued isolation of black Americans was made achingly obvious as war mobilization began to lift the pall of the Depression. Management and labor joined arms to exclude black workers from the benefits of the war boom. A threatened march on Washington by 100,000 African Americans led to FDR's Executive Order 8802, issued on June 25, 1941. There shall be no discrimination in the employment of workers in defense industries or government because of race, creed, color, or national origin, it declared, adding that both employers and labor unions had a positive duty to provide for the full and equitable participation of all workers in defense industries. A newly established Fair Employment Practices Commission was empowered to investigate complaints and take remedial action. It would be too much to say that Executive Order 8802 was a second Emancipation Proclamation. Yet, however grudgingly, Franklin Roosevelt had set the nation back on the freedom road that Abraham Lincoln had opened in the midst of another war three-quarters of a century earlier. 
For seven decades, it had remained the road not taken. Now, for the first time since Reconstruction, the federal government had openly committed itself to making good on at least some of the promises of American life for black citizens. Coming at a moment that was kindled with opportunities for economic betterment and social mobility, Executive Order 8802 fanned the rising flame of black militancy and initiated a chain of events that would eventually end segregation once and for all and open a new era for African Americans. Neil A. Wynn, The African American Experience During World War II, Roman and Littlefield, 2010, pages 97 to 98. The African American experience in World War II clearly had enormous significance in shaping developments in the coming decades. Neither a beginning nor an end in civil rights history, the war took further issues raised in the 1930s and beyond and paved the way for future developments. The war years brought massive economic, demographic, and ideological shifts in the makeup of the American population. The removal of millions of men and women into the armed forces and their service overseas in itself generated considerable upheaval. The war boom accelerated the movement of populations into the defense industries, precipitating huge growth in urban centers, new and old, and intensifying problems in the workplace, housing, and public recreation. For African Americans, all these things carried an additional dimension. Military service raised questions that had been posed throughout American history concerning segregation, limits to service, and their significance in relation to black claims for citizenship and equal rights. Black service personnel returning from Alaska and the Aleutians, from Europe and Asia, arrived back on American soil expectant and determined to see change, as were the men and women who had contributed to the war effort at home. If the war did not bring total, overwhelming, and complete change, it brought enough to establish the preconditions for another generation to demand that the United States indeed practice the very principles it espoused at home and continued to defend abroad. The achievement of so much in terms of presidential action and changing federal policy during and immediately after the war seemed to indicate a new commitment racial equality. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Please turn left and walk about four feet. Stretching down to your right, this wall display discusses the gathering storm of the 1930s across the globe, including information on overseas aggression, American isolationism, and the refugee crisis. A text panel on your left reads, The Gathering Storm. The peace, the freedom, and the security of 90% of the population of the world is being jeopardized by the remaining 10% who are threatening a breakdown of all international order and law. Surely the 90% who want to live in peace under law and in accordance with moral standards can and must find some way to make their will prevail. Franklin Roosevelt, address at Chicago, October 5, 1937. For the United States and other democratic nations, the 1930s was a time of growing peril. 
Across the globe, economic depression bred mass unemployment and despair. In some nations, financial strife aided the rise of totalitarian leaders. These leaders offered simple solutions to their country's problems, solutions based on military expansion, extreme nationalism, political violence, and doctrines of racial superiority. In Europe, German dictator Adolf Hitler and his Italian counterpart Benito Mussolini began to threaten their neighbors. In Asia, the military-dominated government of Japan, hungry for land and raw materials, plotted a path of territorial expansion. As the decade progressed, events overseas cast an ever-widening shadow over America. Increasingly, FDR and the nation found their attention drawn away from domestic economic concerns. To listen to this additional information about the gathering storm, please press 525 on your audio player. If you do not wish to listen to this description, please turn right and walk about 12 feet forward. Then turn left. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 525, The Gathering Storm. Two six feet wide by six feet tall maps positioned side by side run down the length of the left wall. Along the bottom of these two maps is a series of angled panels about waist high and protruding out from the wall about 12 inches. The first map on the left illustrates Japanese expansion from the seizure of Manchuria in 1931 to their expansion into China in 1939. Ten feet ahead on the left, the next map illustrates German and Italian expansion from 1935 to 1939, including a huge swath from northern Germany down through Italy, including Sudetenland, Bohemia Moravia, and Austria. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. A detailed timeline of world aggression from 1931 to 1939 is shown along the bottom of these two maps. To listen to this additional information, please press 526 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 526, Timeline of World Aggression. Beginning September 18, 1931, when Japanese troops began occupying Manchuria, highlighted dates include January 30, 1933, Adolf Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. March 16, 1935, Hitler reveals existence of a secretly built air force called the Luftwaffe. September 15, 1935. Germany announces the Nuremberg Laws, which exclude German Jews from citizenship and prohibit them from marrying or having sexual relations with persons of German or related blood. November 25, 1936. Germany and Japan sign the Anti-Comintern Pact. A secret protocol to the pact pledges the two nations to remain neutral if either goes to war with the Soviet Union. November 6, 1937, Italy joins the Anti-Comintern Pact. 
November 9, 1938, Kristallnacht attacks on Jews and their property throughout Germany. May 22, 1939, Germany and Italy sign a military alliance. August 23, 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union sign a non-aggression treaty. Secret portions outline a joint effort to invade and divide Poland. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. A series of angled panels about waist-high underneath the maps and timeline, starting at the left, read, Overseas Aggression. Between 1931 and 1939, totalitarian nations in Europe and Asia embarked on paths of aggression and military conquest. In 1931, Japan occupied Manchuria. Six years later, it began a full-scale invasion of China. In 1935, Italy invaded Ethiopia. In Europe, Germany annexed Austria in 1938 and absorbed much of Czechoslovakia in 1938-1939. Hitler next set his sights on Poland. At first, the democratic nations reacted meekly to these acts of aggression. But by 1939, Britain and France were determined to resist Hitler. They pledged to come to Poland's defense if Germany attacked. Separated by two oceans from these troubles, Americans hoped to avoid involvement in foreign conflicts. Yet some, including President Roosevelt, began to view events overseas with increasing alarm. About three feet to the right, a second panel reads, American Isolationism. FDR wanted to deter international aggression. He believed America's physical distance from Europe and Asia no longer assured its long-term security from foreign threats. But his ability to act was restricted by deep-seated American isolationism. Since the nation's birth, the bedrock of American foreign policy was avoiding entanglement in foreign military alliances and conflicts. While Americans sympathized with the victims of aggression, most felt overseas troubles had little to do with their country's national security. Many regretted American involvement in World War I. Concerned about economic difficulties at home, they hoped to stay out of international disputes. With public opinion limiting his options, FDR proceeded with caution. He spoke out against violations of international law, but avoided a direct confrontation with the isolationists. Three feet to the right, another panel reads, Refugee Crisis. The news of the past few days from Germany has deeply shocked public opinion in the United States. I myself could scarcely believe that such things could occur in a 20th century civilization. Franklin Roosevelt, press conference comments on the Kristallnacht attacks on German Jews, November 15, 1938. Shortly after seizing power in 1933, Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime began to systematically strip Germany's Jews of legal and political rights. As the decade progressed, the Nazis pursued a policy of ever-widening persecution. In desperation, many Jews tried to emigrate to America. But strict U.S. immigration laws 
and natural origin quotas enacted during the 1920s barred all but a few immigrants of any kind from admittance. FDR was kept informed of the growing refugee crisis by political leaders with ties to the American Jewish community. Through them, he also learned that America's strict immigration quotas were not being fully or fairly administered by the State Department. But because the quota laws enjoyed wide public and congressional support, Roosevelt and his advisors felt he couldn't aggressively pursue policies to admit more Jewish refugees. His actions were largely confined to condemning Germany's behavior. Continue another three feet forward to the end of the maps and turn left. A video screen on an angled platform about waist high juts out about 12 inches from the wall. This is another Confront the Issue interactive touchscreen flipbook entitled FDR and the Pre-War Refugee Crisis. The historical debate about this crisis is presented in this exhibit using key documents from the FDR library collections. To listen to this additional information, please press 527 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 527, FDR and the Pre-War Refugee Crisis In recent decades, some scholars have criticized President Roosevelt for his approach to the pre-war Jewish refugee crisis. They maintain he could have lobbied Congress to liberalize American immigration policy and taken a strong hand with the State Department, which was administering America's strict immigration laws and quotas with cold indifference. Others insist such assessments failed to account adequately for the American public's pre-war isolationism and anti-Semitism. Touch the screen to explore excerpts of the historical debate that relate to FDR and the Jewish refugee crisis of the 1930s and reproductions of selected key documents from the FDR library collections. The rest of the descriptions in this exhibit consist of a series of documents and book quotes, each addressing different aspects of the crisis. You may continue listening to this information or press the right arrow key on your audio tour player to exit this layer of information and continue with the rest of the tour. Document 1, FDR's Handwritten Comment on a 1933 American edition of Hitler's Mein Kampf, my Battle, 1933. Hitler came to power in Germany just weeks before Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated on March 4, 1933. Soon after his inauguration, FDR received this 1933 English translation of Hitler's treaties, Mein Kampf, My Battle, published by Houghton Mifflin. In translating and editing down the lengthy work, the publisher stripped out much of Hitler's anti-Semitic rantings and kept chapters on Nazi ideas of a restored German militaristic economy and society. The edited version outraged the American Jewish community. Roosevelt, who spoke and read German, was also appalled by the book. On the flyleaf of his copy, seen here, FDR wrote a rare editorial comment. This translation is so expurgated as to give a wholly false view of what Hitler really is or says. The German original would make a different story. 
Document 2, FDR's exchange of letters with South Carolina Governor I.C. Blackwood, March 31st through April 12th, 1933. As Hitler solidified his hold on power in March 1933, roving gangs of Nazi thugs beat up and arrested Jews and vandalized synagogues. Forty Jews were dead by the end of June. News of these attacks was well publicized in the United States, and pleas for President Roosevelt to take some sort of action on behalf of Germany's Jews were sent to the White House. One of the earliest came from South Carolina's governor, I.C. Blackwood, who wrote to FDR at the urging of Jewish friends. In his reply sent two weeks later, the president advises Governor Blackwood that the attacks against Jews in Germany were being very seriously considered and that very appropriate action has been taken. In reality, very little action was taking place. At this time, the Roosevelt administration viewed the situation in Germany in 1933 to be a domestic problem of its own and would not interfere diplomatically. Document 3, FDR's letter to New York Governor Herbert Lehman, November 13, 1935. Throughout the 1930s, President Roosevelt was kept informed of the growing refugee crisis in Europe by political leaders with ties to the American Jewish community, including New York Governor Herbert Lehman. Through these contacts, Roosevelt also learned that the strict immigration quotas in place at the time were not being fully and fairly administered by his own State Department. In this November 13, 1935 letter, the president advises Lehman of the results of his own examination of the visa issue, the legal limitations imposed by the Immigration Act of 1924, and his instruction to the State Department that German Jews applying for visas be given the most generous and favorable treatment possible under the laws of this country. Document 4. Memorandum for Miss LaHand from Stephen Early, November 13, 1936. Because of the country's isolationism and the immigration laws in place in the mid-1930s, President Roosevelt often felt constrained in taking a more proactive stance with regard to European refugees. In this November 13, 1936 memorandum for the President's private secretary, Missy LaHand, Press Secretary Stephen Early recommends that Roosevelt resist the temptation to issue a requested appeal on behalf of persecuted Christians in Germany. Such an appeal, in the opinion of Early and the State Department, would be an inappropriate expression of the President's preference for one group of refugees over others. FDR indicates his acceptance of Early's recommendation at the bottom of the memo. Document 5, FDR and Rabbi Stephen Wise's letters about the second inaugural address, January 15th through the 23rd, 1937. Rabbi Stephen Wise was an important and influential advocate for Jewish causes during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. Wise sought often unsuccessfully, to unify various Jewish organizations and movements in the United States, and his international network of contacts sent him information about the worsening crisis facing Jews in Europe. In January 1937, just days before FDR's second inauguration, Wise received information that the Polish government had declared three million Polish Jews to be 
superfluous. Wise wrote this letter to the president, urging him to use his inaugural address to assure the public that no one in America would be considered superfluous. As can be seen from Roosevelt's reply letter and this page from his second inaugural address reading copy, FDR took Wise's advice. He used Wise's suggested language almost word for word in the most recognizable passage of the speech. Document 6, transcript of FDR's press conference at Warm Springs, Georgia, March 25, 1938. On March 12, 1938, German troops marched into neighboring Austria, bringing more than 200,000 Jewish Austrians under Nazi control. Because a bill to increase immigration quotas could not pass Congress, FDR took executive action. He combined Austria's immigration quota with Germany's, thus increasing the number of Germans who could be considered for U.S. visas. The president announced the new policy at a press conference held in Warm Springs, Georgia. Document 7, Anti-Jewish Flyer Sent to the White House, April 4, 1938. As the Depression wore on, Reactionary groups in the United States searched for someone or something to blame for continued unemployment. Believing that new immigrants to the United States might take already scarce American jobs, these groups opposed any change to the country's restrictive immigration laws to help Jewish refugees. Because FDR had several prominent Jewish advisors, including Samuel Rosenman, Henry Morgenthau Jr., and Felix Frankfurter, Anti-Semites labeled the New Deal the Jew Deal. It was alleged that Roosevelt was subservient to Jewish interests and therefore not acting in the interests of traditional Christian Americans. This anti-Semitic flyer was dropped by airplane over downtown Los Angeles, California by an unknown group. It was sent to the White House by a concerned citizen of Los Angeles. Document 8. FDR's letter to Myron C. Taylor on the Avian Conference, April 26, 1938. Following the German Anschluss with Austria, FDR proposed an international conference to facilitate and finance political refugee emigration to other countries. In this letter, Roosevelt appoints Myron C. Taylor, a moderate Republican businessman, to represent the United States at the July 1938 Avian Conference. At the conference, Taylor announced that the U.S. would admit its full German-Austrian quota of 27,370 per year over the next five years, a number far lower than the 300,000 applicants on waiting lists for U.S. visas. The conference also established a new intergovernmental committee on refugees to negotiate with Germany on refugee matters. Ultimately, though, the Avion Conference was a failure because no country, including the United States, was willing to take in the large numbers of European Jews seeking safe haven. Document 9, Draft Statement by the President on Kristallnacht, November 15, 1938. Nazi violence against German Jews escalated on November 9th 1938, when gangs of stormtroopers rampaged throughout the country, destroying synagogues and breaking windows of Jewish business 
and homes. When the officially sanctioned violence, which became known as Kristallnacht, Night of Broken Glass, finally ended, nearly 100 German Jews were dead and 30,000 men sent to concentration camps. President Roosevelt drafted this statement expressing his outrage at Kristallnacht and recalling the American ambassador to Germany. The changes and additions are in the president's handwriting. He read the statement at his November 15th press conference. Kristallnacht failed to change the policies of immigration, and no increase in quotas was proposed in Congress. But FDR did take executive action, ordering the indefinite extension of the temporary visas held by several thousand German Jews already in the United States. If the Congress takes no action, these unfortunate people will be allowed to stay in this country, FDR declared. I cannot, in any decent humanity, throw them out. Document 10, FDR's exchange of letters with Ernest L. Klein, November 12th through the 17th, 1938. The events of Kristallnacht were widely reported in the press, but public opinion on admitting additional refugees into the United States remained divided. Mail came into the White House, both calling for action and demanding restraint in dealing with Germany and the Jewish crisis. This divide in public opinion placed enormous constraints on FDR's ability to steer Congress towards more liberal immigration policies. Shortly after Kristallnacht, Ernest L. Klein from Chicago wrote this letter to the president, urging him to take such steps as may be deemed advisable to curb this madness. FDR responded a few days later and advised Klein of efforts by the Intergovernmental Committee on Refugees to negotiate with Germany for the orderly emigration of the unfortunate victims to other countries. Document 11, Telegram from A Fed-Up American Gentile, November 17, 1938. FDR's executive actions and public statements on behalf of German Jews after Kristallnacht also resulted in hateful and extreme anti-Semitic mail being sent to the White House. In this telegram, a self-declared but anonymous, fed-up American Gentile from New Jersey threatened FDR with revolution or impeachment for being the puppet of international Jew warmongers and Washington Jewish minorities. The White House did not respond to this message. Document 12, Charts of German-American Bund Activities, 1939. As the world crisis worsened, isolationist and non-interventionist organizations increasingly challenged any efforts by FDR to aid threatened democracies abroad and prepare the nation for possible war. Their isolationist rhetoric was often mixed with racial prejudice and a suspicion of foreigners. One of the most ominous of these organizations was the German-American Bund, a domestic pro-Nazi group that preached fascism and anti-Semitism and had chapters across the country. The Roosevelt administration was concerned about the potentially contagious influence of the Bund and similar organizations on public opinion. It kept close watch over their activities, as can be seen in this series of charts 
provided to FDR by the State Department. Document 13, Eleanor Roosevelt's letter to Judge Justine Wise Polieu, January 4, 1939. In early 1939, Eleanor Roosevelt publicly supported a bill that would have allowed the admission of up to 30,000 Jewish children outside the quota system. Consistent with its restrictive interpretation of immigration laws and regulations, the State Department objected to the proposal. Supporters of the bill, including Rabbi Stephen Wise's daughter, Judge Justine Wise Polieu, asked Mrs. Roosevelt to consult with the president on how best to proceed with the children's measure. In this letter, E.R. reports back to Judge Polieu that FDR recommended getting bipartisan agreement on the legislation and gathering as much Catholic support as possible. This last advice, to get Catholic support, was an effort to neutralize the opposition of the popular radio priest, Father Charles Coughlin, a vocal anti-Semitic and isolationist figure. Document 14, Memorandum for the President, June 2, 1939. As the Children's Immigration Bill worked its way through Congress in the spring of 1939, opposition to the measure intensified. Critics launched a public campaign against the bill, claiming that it would lead to unrestricted immigration. Polling showed that two-thirds of the public agreed. The bill's allies began to retreat, and by April, a private poll of senators showed hefty opposition. As the bill languished in committee, New York Representative Caroline O'Day appealed to the White House for the president to issue a statement on behalf of the bill. Realizing the measure was doomed to failure and that fighting for it might endanger his other foreign policy priorities in Congress, FDR ordered that no action be taken on O'Day's request. The children's immigration bill was gutted in committee and never reached a final vote in 1939. Document 15, State Department Memorandum of Conversation Regarding the SS St. Louis, June 8, 1939. On May 13, 1939, three months before World War II, the SS St. Louis, a ship carrying 937 German Jews fleeing Nazi persecution, sailed from Hamburg for Cuba. Other ships had made the same journey, and their refugee passengers had disembarked in Havana. But the Cuban government, responding to corruption and anti-Semitic political pressure, ordered the enforcement of new visa requirements when the St. Louis arrived. Twenty-two passengers who met the new requirements were allowed to land. The remaining passengers were forced to remain on board the ship. Negotiations with the Cuban government, led by the American Joint Distribution Committee, a private Jewish organization, broke down, despite pressure from the U.S. government, as can be seen in this memorandum of conversation written by the U.S. ambassador to Cuba, J. Butler Wright. Tremendous public attention focused on the St. Louis. The ship's passengers even cabled the White House, but the matter was referred to the State Department. America's immigration laws did not permit their entry into the United States since they did not have U.S. visas. American diplomats were able to help resettle the refugees in Great Britain, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Denmark. But many later fell into Nazi hands during the war. 
Contrary to popular belief, there was no specific or official order by FDR refusing entry of the St. Louis refugees. Document 16, FDR's letter to Myron Taylor on the Rubli plan to aid refugees. June 8, 1939. By early 1939, Nazi anti-Jewish laws had led to the confiscation of most Jewish assets and made it almost impossible for any applicant to meet the strict American visa requirements that refugees have sufficient financial resources to support themselves. Resettlement efforts by the Intergovernmental Committee on Refugees also ground to a halt as German officials refused to negotiate for the orderly emigration of German Jews. The committee's director, George Rubli, proposed the establishment of a private foundation that could accept donations from Jewish organizations outside Germany to cover resettlement costs. President Roosevelt hoped this plan would encourage other countries to open their doors to more Jewish refugees, since the costs would be covered by the foundation. In this letter to Myron Taylor, the American representative on the Intergovernmental Committee, the president instructs Taylor to throw his support behind the Rubli plan. But the outbreak of war on September 1, 1939, put an end to any possibility of a negotiated resettlement of German Jews. Document 17, Eleanor Roosevelt's correspondence in aid of refugee Fritz Becker. July 26 through August 1st, 1939. Because of her well-known sympathies, Eleanor Roosevelt received many requests to assist refugees seeking visas to come to the United States. A Dutchess County neighbor, Mr. Hardy Steenholm, contacted ER and asked her to aid a German-Jewish refugee in Yugoslavia named Fritz Becker. In this July 26, 1939 letter, Mrs. Roosevelt's secretary forwarded Becker's information to Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells and asked his assistance in securing a visa for the young man. Wells wrote to Eleanor on August 1, 1939, one month before the beginning of World War II, and advised her that Becker's visa application would not be reached for final consideration for a protracted period of time. Wells returned to Mrs. Roosevelt the photograph of Fritz Becker that she had provided him. Fritz Becker's fate is not known. Book quotes. Raphael Medoff, FDR, and the Holocaust, A Breach of Faith. David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, 2013, page 32. Despite his occasional expressions of sympathy for the Jewish victims of Nazism, President Roosevelt subscribed to a vision of America that had room for only a very small number of them. Richard M. Ketchum, The Borrowed Years, 1938-1941, American on the Way to War, Random House, 1989, pages 108 to 110. America's disregard for what was happening inside Nazi Germany was caused by more than unthinking prejudice. The easiest, most charitable explanation lay in America's preoccupation with itself. Henry L. Feingold, The Politics of Rescue, The Roosevelt Administration and the Holocaust, 1938 to 1945, Rutgers University Press, 1970, pages 16 through 18. 
Roosevelt knew that no exercise of personal charm could bring a change to the immigration law, and no administration attempt to do so was ever hinted at. Instead, the administration directed its attention to liberalizing the implementation of the law, especially the visa procedure. Richard Breitman, The Failure to Provide a Safe Haven for European Jewry, in FDR and the Holocaust, edited by Vern W. Newton, St. Martin's Press, 1996, pages 134 to 135. Mindful of the political difficulties at home, in the spring of 1938, FDR called for an international conference on the refugee problem and pressed for a new international organization. Robert L. Baer, with Brian Josepher, Roosevelt and the Holocaust, a Rooseveltian examines the policies and remembers the times. Barricade, 2006, page 127. In the immediate aftermath of Kristallnacht, Roosevelt proceeded with caution. Shockingly, nothing changed in foreign policy. No move was made to liberalize the quota system. From a position facing the pre-war refugee crisis display, turn around 180 degrees and proceed forward just about five feet. A three-feet square glass display case sits on the floor in front of a panel discussing the state visit in June 1939 by England's King George VI. To listen to more information about that event, please press 528 on your audio player. If at any time you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 528, The Royal Visit I think it would be an excellent thing for Anglo-American relations if you could visit the United States. Franklin Roosevelt to King George VI, September 17, 1938 With war looming, FDR searched for ways to bolster ties with democratic nations opposing Hitler. When he invited England's King George VI for a state visit in June 1939, the message was clear. No reigning British monarch had ever visited America. The invitation signaled a new era in Anglo-American cooperation. FDR and ER planned every detail to ensure the king won sympathy and support. Their efforts paid off. The public heartily welcomed the king and queen in Washington. The royals visited Mount Vernon, where the king laid a wreath at George Washington's grave. Later, they accompanied the Roosevelts to Hyde Park, where they enjoyed simple American pleasures, including a hot dog picnic. FDR and King George developed a real rapport. More important, press coverage of the royal visit fostered public sympathy with Britain. In the glass case are some artifacts of the royal visit, including an eight-inch round ornamental gold inkwell bearing the coat of arms of the House of Windsor, and an advertisement promoting newspaper coverage of the royal couple's visit from the Toronto Star's Weekend Magazine Supplement. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Facing the glass case, turn left and walk about three feet, then turn left 45 degrees. You're now facing the left wall and standing in front of an eight-feet-tall glass case, about four feet wide and three feet deep. Inside this case is a Torah scroll fragment and mantle, 
presented to President Roosevelt on March 14, 1939, by the National Council of Young Israel. Please note, under Jewish law, a sacred Torah scroll must be deemed unfit for synagogue use before it can be exhibited. A Jewish religious scribe, known as a sofer, has examined this scroll and confirmed that a portion had been removed before it was given to FDR. Turn to your right and walk about 10 feet forward and turn left. Mounted on the wall in front of you are a series of political cartoons reflecting conflicting views and public sentiment about the question of FDR running for a third term. To listen to more information about FDR's decision and information about the 22nd Amendment, please press 529 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 529, a third term. Text reads, As FDR neared the end of his second term, speculation began about his successor. There was no constitutional barrier to a third term at that time, but no president had ever exceeded the two-term precedent established by George Washington. FDR seemed ready to follow tradition. He began planning for retirement, establishing a library in Hyde Park for his papers, and discussing potential presidential candidates with advisors. Yet he made no formal announcement of his intentions. By late 1939, with war underway in Europe and Asia, the press began speculating that Roosevelt might seek a third term. FDR seemed to enjoy keeping the pundits guessing about his decision. In 1940, the third-term question became a burning political issue. To the right of these cartoons is a brief text panel discussing the 22nd Amendment. The framers of America's Constitution did not put a limit on the number of terms a president could serve, but George Washington chose to serve only two before retiring. That precedent was followed by every subsequent president until FDR, who was elected to a total of four terms. After Roosevelt's death, Republicans mounted a campaign to pass an amendment to the Constitution placing a cap on the number of terms a president could serve. The 22nd Amendment, limiting presidents to two terms, was ratified in 1951. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Facing this panel, turn right. Note that about four feet to your right, on a three-feet-tall, thin metal stand, is a map showing the layout of the museum. Continue walking forward through an open doorway at the end of this hall into a 15-by-15-feet gallery. Walk about another three feet and turn right to face a five-feet-wide and eight-feet-tall glass display case set into the wall. On a mock pyramid at the top of the case is a three-feet-wide-by-two-feet-high papier-mâché depiction of FDR as the Great Sphinx of Giza. Several third-term political buttons demonstrating the strong feelings on both sides of the debate are displayed. One reads, I'm against the third term. Washington wouldn't. Grant couldn't. Roosevelt shouldn't. While another says, two good terms deserve another. This concludes the fifth section of our tour. 
to continue from a position facing the Sphinx display, turn around 180 degrees, and move forward about six feet on a slight angle to the right. You can access the audio description for the next section of our tour, FDR's Act of Faith, by pressing the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad, or press 6 on your audio tour player. 6. FDR's Act of Faith, approximately 3 minutes. Covering the wall in front of you is a life-size black-and-white photograph of FDR, dressed in a white suit and striped tie, standing behind a lectern in front of an array of microphones. A text panel on your left reads, FDR's Act of Faith. It seems to me that the dedication of a library is in itself an act of faith. Franklin Roosevelt remarks at the dedication of the Franklin Roosevelt Library, June 30, 1941. On June 30, 1941, a crowd gathered on the lawn in front of this building. They had come to witness the dedication of America's first presidential library. As FDR looked out at the group assembled on that warm summer day, he observed that they had gathered at a moment when government of the people, by themselves, is being attacked everywhere. Indeed, as he spoke, totalitarian nations were threatening freedom in Europe and Asia. The dedication of his library, Roosevelt affirmed, was an act of faith that demonstrated our confidence in the future of democracy will not diminish. To listen to this additional information about creating the FDR Library and other American presidential libraries, please press 611 on your audio player. If you do not wish to listen to this description, please turn right and walk about 12 feet forward to a corner of this area, turn right, and move 10 feet forward before turning left and through a doorway leading into the next room. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 611 Creating the FDR Library Before FDR, presidential papers were often lost to history. Presidents routinely took their papers with them when they left office. Some destroyed them. Others scattered them haphazardly, making research difficult, if not impossible. In the 20th century, the families of some presidents began donating their papers to the Library of Congress. But by then, many presidential papers had disappeared given away as souvenirs, destroyed, lost in family attics, and sold to autograph collectors. A collector and student of history, Roosevelt was determined to change this. He devised a plan that revolutionized the way presidential history is preserved and interpreted. He raised private funds to build a library on his estate to house his papers and display his eclectic personal collections. Then he presented the library to the nation as a gift. In 1943, FDR donated his Springwood home to the country on the condition that his family be able to use it after his death. It was transferred to the Department of the Interior in 1945 after the family relinquished their lifetime rights. About five feet further down to your right is a video display on your left showing an old newsreel about the FDR library. Pictures above the screen show the building under construction, while below the video panel at knee height 
is a wide black and white photograph of a crowd of about 40 people seated on wooden chairs to each side of the front entrance to this library on opening day, June 30th, 1941. FDR, in his white suit, stands behind a lectern arrayed with microphones. Facing the video display, turn now to your right to face a five feet wide by four feet tall map of the United States showing the names and geographical locations of each presidential library with gold nameplates one inch high by four inches wide. America's presidential libraries. The Roosevelt Library inspired a growing system of presidential libraries. Subsequent presidents embraced FDR's model of a public facility built with private funds to preserve their papers, books, and memorabilia. Every president since FDR has built a presidential library, and Herbert Hoover subsequently created one for his records. Today, there are 14 libraries in a system operated by the National Archives and Records Administration. Their records are open to the public and used by thousands of researchers each year. In 1978, the Presidential Records Act established that presidential papers would be the property of the nation, starting with the president elected in 1980. Turn right and walk about three feet forward to a doorway on your left leading into the next room and turn left. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. To the left of this three feet wide doorway, a text panel introduces the next exhibit, FDR's Private Study. This room is the most historic space in the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum, FDR's Private Study. This is the President's actual office, not a recreation. The Roosevelt Library is the only presidential library ever used by a sitting president. When it opened to the public in June 1941, FDR was beginning his third term. He used this study as a place to conduct government business, receive visitors, and work with his books and papers during his many visits to Hyde Park, totaling over 250 days during World War II. He also made several of his famous radio speeches, or fireside chats, from this room. As you proceed through the doorway, you'll step off the carpet and onto hardwood flooring, walk about two feet forward, and stop before an eight-feet-high glass-paneled wall. A narrow, three-feet-wide hallway extends about ten feet to your left. The study in front of you is about 15 feet wide by 20 feet long and remains almost precisely as FDR left it on his last visit here on March 28, 1945. To listen to a description of the layout of the room and more information about the items in FDR's study, please press 612 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, Press the right arrow key. Layer 612. What's in the study? Starting at the far right, two eight-feet-wide built-in bookcases with three tall glass-paned doors are located at each end of the 20-feet wall. Wooden cabinets with pull-out bookrest tables complete the cabinets from the chair rail on down. 
a dark-stained wooden writing desk with an additional five-feet-tall glassed-in bookcase sits between the two built-in units. In the far back right-hand corner of the study, about eight feet out from the corner, is FDR's desk on a 45-degree angle. A metal-wheeled wooden wheelchair with an ashtray attached to the right side of the seat pan sits halfway between you and the desk on a Persian rug that covers almost the entire room. On the far back wall hangs a large portrait of a U.S. destroyer over another smaller dark wooden bookcase between two eight-feet-tall windows dressed with draperies and valances decorated with depictions of eagles. A portrait of Sarah Delano Roosevelt is displayed in the back left corner. Coming around to the left is a third window, then a large fireplace ringed in white tile with hand-drawn images in blue of fish, whales, and small mammals. A clock and several urns adorn the mantel under a portrait of a harbor at sunset. An overstuffed chair and a loveseat sit on either side of the fireplace. About six feet to the left along the glass wall, in the far left-hand corner of the study, is a small circular end table with a framed photo collage of five pictures of FDR's dog, Fala. The study walls are painted in pastel green and blue. On a panel labeled, What's in the Study?, text reads, President Roosevelt designed this room for his own use. He selected and arranged the furniture, pictures, and other objects you see here. Many are personal treasures, gifts from friends and relatives, family pieces, or mementos from his travels. They reflect his varied interests, including his love of family history and his passion for sailing and the United States Navy. The study remains almost precisely as FDR left it on his last visit here on March 28, 1945. Items of special interest. Wheelchair. The president used this wheelchair during his frequent visits to the library. It is one of several built to his specifications. He had workers cut the legs off of an ordinary wooden chair and mount it to a custom-designed chassis. Note the swivel-mounted ashtray on the right side. FDR spent relatively little time in his wheelchair. It was used to transport him between destinations. He would typically sit in one of the chairs arranged in this room. Painting above the mantel. This painting of an Italian harbor at sunset is attributed to Claude Lorraine, 1600-1682. FDR's godmother, Eleanor Blodgett, gave it to him in 1923. Portrait of Sarah Delano Roosevelt. In 1940, the president's mother commissioned this portrait by Douglas Shandor, 1897-1953, expressly for this room. Draperies and Valances. The draperies and valances are reproductions of the originals made for this room in 1941 by workers at the Norfolk, Virginia Works Progress Administration, WPA, Craft Project. Painting behind FDR's desk. The large painting behind FDR's desk depicts the destroyer USS Dyer. The Dyer carried Assistant Secretary of the Navy Franklin Roosevelt to Europe for an inspection trip in 1918. Shortly after that trip, FDR commissioned this painting by Charles E. Rattan, 1884 to 1939. 
It depicts Roosevelt's arrival in the harbor of Ponta Delgada, Azores, in July 1918. Chippendale Chair The Chippendale Chair, with needlepoint seat cover to the left of FDR's desk, once belonged to Benjamin Chu, Chief Justice of the Provincial Court of Pennsylvania. It was given to FDR by his cousin, Margaret L. Suckley, a Chu descendant. Suckley assisted the president with the furnishing of his study. Urn. The urn on the bookcase to the left of FDR's desk was once owned by Elizabeth Chu, daughter of Benjamin Chu, Chief Justice of the Provincial Court of Pennsylvania. It was given to FDR by his cousin, Margaret L. Suckley, a Chu descendant. FDR's Desk. This desk is a copy of the one used by FDR in this room. The original desk, a replica of one once owned by George Washington, was removed by FDR's son, James, after the president's death. Roosevelt purchased that desk in 1918 for President Woodrow Wilson while he was serving as Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy. It was part of a set of furnishings FDR brought to outfit Wilson's quarters aboard the USS George Washington, the ship Wilson used to travel to Europe to attend the Versailles Peace Conference at the end of World War I. Years later, when the ship's furnishings were auctioned off, FDR purchased the desk. He later installed it in this room. Books. The books in the room are part of FDR's personal library of over 22,000 volumes. He personally selected the volumes to be stored here. Persian Carpet. This carpet, woven in Isfahan, was presented to President Roosevelt by the Shah of Iran at the Tehran Conference in November 1943. FDR's Secretary Desk. An excellent example of late federal or classical furniture, this desk was made in New York in the early 19th century. After FDR's death, his son, James, inherited the desk. It was later acquired by Donald W. Stern, an antiques dealer. In 2011, thanks to the generosity of Mr. Stern, the Roosevelt Institute, and William J. Vanden Heuvel, it was donated to the Roosevelt Library and returned to its place in FDR's study. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. This concludes the sixth section of our tour. Please turn left and move about 10 feet before turning left. Walk about 10 feet through a narrow doorway back onto carpet into the next gallery of the museum. You can access the audio description for the next section of our tour, War, by pressing the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad or press 7 on your audio tour player. <laughs> 